Let's not lie. These vaccines are going to quit working on every corner until this nation falls to her knees and repents for dead babies and repents for the sodomy of this nation. We've had vaccines for measles, for polio, for smallpox, for swine flu. How is this different? Well, I think it's different in a lot of ways because it's so new. Uh, Even though it's very safe, it's very effective. We know that. I believe that. There are people that have doubt that's out there because they haven't been uh, all three fully authorized yet and then mixed messaging out of the Biden administration. And plus, just like the AIDS vaccine, mandating it didn't work. It only worked when they started educating people why it was a good idea. That's what we need to continue to do uh, with the COVID vaccine. The sodomy of this nation. Critical race theory. It was very good, very informative. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate Thank you, Mark. It. On, the, on the Princeton point here, you and I have discussed it, it at the college level. This is this fair game. Like Go ahead and do it, right? I mean, I remember 20 years old going to Trier, Germany, and trying to find the home of Karl Marx because, you know. 1848, he wrote Mein Kampf. I want to know what it was all about. So that's part of the education in America, if you so choose. So uh, that's that. More to come. Green Mile. Uh- Have you been a good little Nazi? Hey, Otoshi! Hey, Otoshi! Hey, Otoshi! Hey, Otoshi! You guys work for us in 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 this uh, environment. You answer to us, and I'm asking that you do not pass this policy in Virginia. Thank you so much, Ms. Thomas. We do appreciate you. Phil McCracken. Phil McCracken. Salk, Souk, Mahidik. Souk, Mahidik. Ophelia McHawk. Ophelia McHawk. Eileen Dover. Eileen Dover. Don Kiddick. Don Kiddick. Wayne Kerr. Wayne Kerr. Have you ever struggled with alcohol? Never at all. Never at all. Were you drunk during those interviews when they said you were? Absolutely not. I don't think I've ever done an interview drunk. I have uh, sometimes, I mean, I drink normally. I like scotch, I drink scotch. So you do not believe that you have a drinking problem? I know, I don't know to believe it, I know I'm not. I mean, I, I, no, I'm not alcoholic. I'm a functioning, I'm probably, probably function. Let's not lie. Remember, I'm not the one trying to undermine American democracy. I am the one trying to save American democracy. 
I mean, I lie. 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 Get babies! It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way I think I think we can do this. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Welcome to the mop up for September 20th, September 20th, 19, 1921. Yes, I'm not taking a vacation, so just deal with it. Welcome to the mop up for September 20th. 2021. I'm David Feldman, barely coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where it is the last day of summer. Uh, Did you accomplish anything during your summer? Like get vaccinated? Coming up at 6.30, Howie Klein is going to introduce us Two, that's at seven o'clock. He'll be here, but he's coming on early at 630. And we're going to meet Brittany Ramos de Barros. She's a candidate for New York's 11th congressional district. We're going to talk about Staten Island, the only borough in New York City that consistently goes for Republicans, except uh, two years ago. But uh, and then at seven o'clock, we'll be talking to Howie Klein. And, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic. I believe in love and I believe in marriage. I've been married, I don't know, six times, I think. And I love people who believe in the future, like this guy who decided the world is falling apart, but you know what? Marry me. And he made some kind of paper crochet Mary sign that had balloons and and it was taller than Will Chamberlain and it collapsed on him. And I wish that couple well. I think they're from Texas and I wish them well. Marry me. What a romantic way to propose. You know how I propose to my third wife? 
I uh, bought a nice engagement ring. I said, honey, go change the kitty litter box. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. And uh, she was. She was scooping out the kitty litter box, and she found uh, the engagement ring. I love proposing marriage. That's why I'm constantly getting married. Bill Maher. I love Bill Maher. I used to work for him. He is brilliant. He's the smartest man on television. I consider him the undescended testicle of liberal thought. And the man has a problem telling the truth. I don't know why. I, I, he, he's been playing fast and loose with the truth. And I have tremendous respect for him. But I have to call him out when he's lying to protect the richest 1% which he is more than just part of. He's become their spokesperson. Here he is talking about AOC showing up at the Met Gala wearing an Eat the Rich dress. I'll talk about that later. The picture of AOC wearing her dress, because this got all the attention this week. Uh, this is something that, you know, the Met Gala attracts lots of crazy outfits. But this is a new thing that people have been doing. They've been wearing... I guess their message, their life philosophy, tax the rich. I just want to read the, I had some sets here. Oh, at New York City, 65,000, the richest 65,000 New Yorkers uh, out of 8 million people pay 51% of taxes. And what proportion is that? I'm just saying 65,000 out of 8 million pay half. And their taxes are So it's are not like we low. don't tax the rich at all. Mm-hmm. We've oh, been no. slashing... That's fine. I'm all for ending income inequality, but let's not lie. The rich pay a lot of the taxes. Yes, so because you can't tax the help at the Met Gala. You're going to have no, to tax the look, rich fuckers. Most of them the don't Gala. pay taxes already. They pay a higher proportion of income tax than Jeff Bezos does. No, that his company does. Yes, I understand that. Yes, there are there are lots of things we need to amend about the capitalist system. We we have crony capitalism in this country, no doubt about it. I'm just saying. You wear it, you wear tax the rich on your ass. And people are always saying rich don't pay taxes. They pay some taxes. They pay a big part of the freight already. I'm not saying it shouldn't be more, perhaps, but let's not lie. Yes, let's not lie, Bill. Wow, you really are the smartest man on television. Even more incredible is you're not just the smartest man on television. You've also stopped reading 30 years ago. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how a man can be that brilliant and not pick up, not crack a book. The man reads, doesn't read anything unless his writers put it in front of him. But he is the smartest man on television. I have tremendous respect for Bill Maher. I think of him as an oozing anal fistula clinging desperately to the body politic. And we should listen to this baby boomer. Baby boomers need to, to be heard, especially the, the multimillionaires who lie to protect their neighbors. So let's peel this back a little. This is the first thing he said. The picture of AOC wearing her dress, because this got all the attention this week. Actually, Bill, it didn't get all the attention this week didn't get any of the attention. It got the attention of people who have to call, have to desperately find AOC's hypocrisy, because there's no way you can argue with AOC on the merits of her ideology. 
you've never addressed so, uh, socialism. You're too frightened to take on the socialists because you're a tool of capital. So, of course, you're going to say this got all the attention this week because AOC showed up at the Met Gala with a tax the rich sign or emblazoned on her rump in her dress was a tax the rich sign and it got all the attention it got all the attention because you're too lazy intellectually to challenge AOC on the green new deal the infrastructure bill socialism greed which you should know something about bill does HBO just pay you to be stupid? I, I guess so. It's a multi-billion dollar company and everybody there wants to protect their profits. So they, they just pay you to act stupid. But you're not stupid. You're lying. OK, so AOC, call her out on her putative hypocrisy. It's not hypocritical for a socialist to show up at a museum. Museums, believe it or not, are something socialists are in favor of because you're socializing art. You're making Picassos and Rembrandts available to everybody. You're not allowed to hoard the paintings in a socialist Eden. They're museums. I have problems with the Met, but that's a whole other, whole other uh, story. There's no hypocrisy going to the Met Gala. Let's not lie. The rich pay a lot of the taxes. Let's not lie. Okay, you're telling us the truth because of your preamble. Let's not lie. The rich. Pay. What did you say? I want to make sure I got this right because it was so interesting. Let's not lie. The rich pay a lot of the taxes. Uh, the rich pay a lot of the taxes. Well, that's a bold statement. Anybody who's been reading for the past 30 years know they would know that that's not true. But you haven't cracked a book, Bill Maher, in 30 years. So back that up. On this show, we back things up. So if you have a fact, you say the rich pay taxes, back it up. Tax the rich. I just want to read the I had some sets here. Oh, at New York City, 65,000 the richest 65,000 New Yorkers uh, out of 8 million people pay 51% of taxes. And what proportion is that? I'm just saying 65,000 out of 8 million pay half. No, uh, no citations. And then he was asked by Dan Savage, one of the supreme intellectuals when it comes to tax code, because uh, if it weren't for Dan Savage, I never would have known about fisting. Dan Savage opened my eyes. <laughs> I, I read Dan. I have no problem with Dan Savage. He's taught me a lot about fisting. So I can't wait to hear his take on the tax code. That's Bill's guest. He's talking taxes with Dan Savage. I'm just saying what the rich. What is the stat here? What did he say here? Tax the rich. I just want to read the I had some sense here. Oh, at New York City. 65,000, the richest 65,000 New Yorkers uh, out of 8 million people pay 51% of taxes. I'm just saying that. I'm not backing it up. I have a stat. It's on a card. I'm not telling you where I read it or where I found it or whose asshole I pulled it out of. 
I looked that up on Google. I couldn't find any stats that say the richest 65,000 New Yorkers pay 50% of all the taxes. Couldn't find it. Do they pay do they pay half the state taxes, half the federal taxes, half local? What, what does that mean, Bill? You're a multi-millionaire. Your show costs millions to produce. You have a research staff and you just, I'm just saying, 65,000 of the richest New, New Yorkers pay half the taxes. You're not backing up your facts. You, you need to do better, Bill. You need to, you need to listen to people who read. Okay. You can't tax the help at the Met Gala. You're going to have to tax the rich fuckers. Most of them don't pay taxes already. They pay a higher proportion of income tax than Jeff Bezos does. That his company does. Yes, I understand that. No, you don't understand that. And you're lying. You cannot possibly be that stupid. I know you've stopped reading. You haven't read a book in 30 years. I know that. But there's no way you could possibly be that stupid to claim that the people who work at the Met don't pay taxes. They pay sales taxes. They, we have one of the most punitive tax codes in the world. Poor people pay way more in taxes than the wealthy do. Okay, here's where he's lying. And he tries to, it's really pernicious because he says it with such authority. Dan Savage, who I never would have known about fisting had it not been for Dan Savage. So I'd like to hear his opinion on tax code. Near the end, listen to what Bill Maher says about Jeff Bezos. This is has to be a lie. There's no way Bill Maher can be this ignorant. You can't tax the help at the Met Gala. You're going to have to tax the rich fuckers. Most of them don't pay taxes already. They pay a higher proportion of income tax than Jeff Bezos does. That his company does. Yes, I understand that. His company does. Bill, you're a liar. You're a liar. You know that that's not true. You're lying for the richest 1%. You're like the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. You're like Club for Growth. You will say anything to protect your cronies. That's a lie, and you know it's a lie. You said that Amazon pays taxes, which they don't, right? You said you said that you know that I'm sorry. You said you knew that Amazon doesn't pay taxes, uh, but but Jeff Bezos does, right? And you said it authoritatively, and that's a lie. You said that Jeff Bezos is taxed, and he's not. And you know that, and that's a lie. Well, I don't have a research staff. I have Google. And this is from ProPublica, Bill, which I know you know about, Bill. I know you've seen this. You're a liar, Bill. So ProPublica got its hands on the tax returns of the billionaires, Bill. And you know this. You know this, so you're a liar. Warren Buffett, his wealth grew uh, over a four-year period from, uh, hang on for one second here. Let me clean up my desktop here. I'm a one-man band. Yes. So ProPublica looked at tax returns for the billionaires from uh, 2014 to 2018. We'll get to Jeff Bezos in a second, Bill. But you know this. You're a liar. Warren Buffett, over a four-year period, 
saw his wealth grow by $24.3 billion. He reported an income of $125 million over a four-year period, and the total taxes paid was $23.7 million. Warren Buffett paid $23.7 million over a four-year period when his wealth grew by $24,380,000,000. That's a true tax rate bill of 0.10%. You're lying. You're a liar, Bill. You know that. Your friend, Jeff Bezos, who I'm sure you're in business with, according to ProPublica, they got their hands on the tax returns of Jeff Bezos. His wealth grew between 2014 and 2018 by $99 billion, right? He paid $973 million in taxes over a four-year period. You got it, Bill? His wealth grew by $99 billion. He paid $97 973 million dollars in taxes. That's a true tax rate of zero point. I can't see that. 98 percent. Fewer than one percent, Bill. That's fewer than one percent. And you know that. Now, I know that when people's wealth grows, it's because of property that gets more expensive or stocks that get more expensive and it's not treated as income. Although there, Elizabeth Warren believes, and I do believe, that there should be a wealth tax. If you're worth $50 billion on paper, we should tax your paper. When you're worth $50 billion and you're only showing income, what, what kind of income did he show? So Jeff Bezos showed $4.2 billion in reported income on a wealth growth of close to $100 billion. So he's only reporting his salaries and his dividends, his capital gains, but he's not reporting what he has. And that should be taxed. There should be a wealth tax, period. If if your stock portfolio is worth $20 billion, those assets should be taxed, not just the dividends, the assets. And you know that, Bill. You know that. You know that the, that the wealthy do not pay taxes. They do not pay their fair share of taxes. They do not pay taxes. There were some years where Jeff Bezos, I think two years ago, he didn't pay any taxes. You're a liar, Bill. You're too smart. And this is a problem. When we have people like Bill Maher lying because we have a $3.5 trillion trillion infrastructure bill that Bernie Sanders is trying to usher through a very tight Senate. $3.5 trillion that would, some believe, be the most sweeping piece of legislation since the great society since the New Deal. I'm not sure about that. It's uh, $3.5 trillion spread out over 10 years. It's half of what Bernie wanted. We need to build roads and tunnels, prepare for climate change. We need to start switching, incentivizing 
industry to get off fossil fuel. That's all in this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, this budget bill that Bernie is trying to get passed, that Joe Biden is trying to get passed. It would provide universal preschool. It would provide paid family leave, paid sick leave. It would provide possibly, possibly dental and eye for Medicare. It could possibly lower the age of Medicare. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Well, the richest 1%. Partly because they don't want to pay for it, which they're not going to, they don't pay taxes, but they don't want a safety net for the 99% bill. And you know why. You don't want to pay anybody. You, you don't want a safety net for the 99% because they quit their job. They won't take your BS or they want more money. That's not what you want. A safety net makes your life impossible because you can't get good help. I'm not being sarcastic. That's the truth. And, and at least the Republicans have been pretty open about that. Don't help anybody because then our cleaning ladies are going to want more money. The guy doing my cabinets for the 50th time this year because my effing wife is never happy is going to charge me more. But if there's no safety net, you can pretty much get slaves to do it. And isn't that part of the American tradition? So wouldn't you know it, $3.5 trillion that could put a dent in the suffering of the 99%, we're now suddenly hearing about the deficit ceiling. There's the possibility that, that Congress, the, the, the House, will not approve, will not lift the debt ceiling. And the Republicans have warned that we're looking at a fiscal cliff. We haven't seen this since the Obama years. We never, as Democrats, we never threatened to have the federal government default. But now, as we're trying to get $3.5 trillion passed through reconciliation, suddenly Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are threatening not to lift the debt ceiling and this government will default. And that gives ammunition to pieces of excrement like Joe Manchin, who can say, you know what? We can't pass Bernie's $3.5 trillion bill because the Republicans won't agree to it. And neither will I, because I'm all about sound fiscal policy. There was an article in The New York Times, by, this, uh, by the way, this week about Joe Manchin. He's uh, chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. And on the infrastructure bill, he's writing up the elements of the new Green Deal. He makes something like half a million dollars a year in dividends from a coal company he owns. He is the biggest recipient of coal donations. This POS is writing the, the part of the infrastructure bill that is supposed to transition our economy away from fossil fuel. Be polite. Please call Senator Joe Manchin. This is his phone number. And... Uh, you'll get an answering machine and leave a, a polite message. And I mean polite because if you make it about yourself, it doesn't register. They'll just, it actually hurts the cause. 
there's still time left to get Bernie's $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill passed. Call Senator Joe Manchin, 304-368-0567. That number is 304-368-0567. Give your name and politely say Senator Joe Manchin, something along, you know, like this. I don't agree with you on much, but I think this is do or die. This this infrastructure bill is going to be the difference between climate catastrophe and buying a couple of more years. And if we don't give the 99% something to be cheerful about the next insurrection, we're just going to sit it out. We're just going to sit out the next insurrection. We'll watch it on TV and we won't be as outraged as we were the first time. Again, Joe Manchin pretty bad guy. But if you tell him that, if you leave that on his machine, he's not going to respond to that. Call 304-368-0567 and politely ask him to support Bernie's bill. Please, politely. Well, we have a Twitter poll coming up. I'm trying to make a decision as to uh, who is the more vile corn-filled effluvium. Is it Manchin or Mnuchin? Remember Steve Mnuchin? That's his uh, his wife, his third wife, the ape man, Steve Mnuchin, who was Treasury Secretary under Donald Trump. He was the one who forged, literally forged foreclosure documents. I think it was Bank West that he owed. He just but he just foreclosed on people's homes illegally, and the Attorney General of California wouldn't prosecute him. I think it had something to do with Mnuchin donating to the California Attorney General's office, and she's now our vice president. That's Mnuchin, and that's Manchin. Who is the more vile corn-filled effluvium? We're doing a poll on my Twitter account, at David Feldman. Go vote right now and uh, vote. Who is the more vile corn-filled effluvium? And uh, again, Joe Manchin's Manchin's phone number is 304-368-0567, 304-368-0567. Well, we have the early results of my Twitter poll. Do you want to see this? Here we go. Here are the early results of today's Twitter poll. Pick the more vile corn-filled effluvium, Manchin or Mnuchin. 66% say Manchin, 33% say Mnuchin. That's interesting. 66% of my Twitter followers, are, and there aren't my, many, 66% believe that Joe Manchin is the more vile corn-filled effluvium than uh, Steve Mnuchin. So there's still time to vote. There's still time to vote and uh, subscribe to my Twitter feed before I give up on Twitter. It's, it, it's too much like high school. I, I cannot, I don't know, I don't understand how Twitter works. But we're doing a poll. College students say they're smoking more dope than they are drinking. 
binge drinking it is, at, is at a record low in the United States, according to a new study among college students. They're all getting high. That's good news. The Dow Jones Industrial Average sank more than 2% at the opening bell. I think that's still the case. Let me just double check if the, the, the stock market crashed today or not. It's, uh, what was it, down? It was down 2.19%. Worst day since May. <laughs> really? Worst day since May? Oh, for the stock market. Yes. Yeah. Uh, today was the worst day since yesterday for the rest of us. Well, the 2021 Emmys were last night. Did you watch them? They, it was great. It was great. Uh, really great topical jokes that I wish I had written. There was a sketch uh, featuring the fly that got stuck on... Mike Pence's hair a year ago. <laughs> they did a uh, sketch about uh, a fly on Mike Pence's uh, hair from a year ago. Very topical writing. And nobody wore a mask. It was, it was a super spreader. But then again, nobody there would be nominated for an Emmy if they weren't super spreaders. That is... Uh, that is the uh, Emmys. I was kind of shocked. Oh, by the way, uh, Dave Cyrus won an Emmy. <laughs> Dave, our very own, our very own Dave Cyrus won an Emmy for his writing on Saturday Night Live. If I did happy for others, I would be happy for Dave Cyrus. I just don't do happy for other people. But congratulations, nevertheless, I was I, I was almost happy for Dave Cyrus. Nobody wore a mask. I couldn't believe it is why Democrats lose. I don't know what they were thinking. I really don't. Hollywood is so cut off from reality. That's their job is, you know, not to deal with reality. Don't lecture people, though, about politics. I always wonder why even Bernie fell for it. Nobody likes the idea of Hollywood. They like movies. They like their favorite television shows. But the general idea of Hollywood, nobody likes. People are jealous of them. They're seen as royalty. They're seen as hypocrites when people in show business go to the Emmys and they're not wearing masks while at the same time they're mocking Oklahoma, Florida, Alabama for not wearing masks. It, it doesn't, it, it, it's bad. It, it's really bad. I know everybody was vaccinated. I get that. But it's Hollywood. People lie in Hollywood, especially as to whether or not they got vaccinated. Lying in Hollywood is considered good manners. If somebody doesn't lie to me, I, I, it's good manners to me is if you, if you saw me do stand up and you just say that was great. And I know you're lying, but you're just being polite. Holly, there would be no Hollywood if it weren't for liars. You really going to trust everyone who, sh who works in television to tell you the truth? 
as to whether or not they've been vaccinated. Come on. That was really a bad call. Really bad. There's a shortage of ivermectin for horses because horses' asses like Joe Rogan and Jimmy Dore are telling people that ivermectin can stave off COVID and cure it, even though no evidence whatsoever. Now, horse owners, poor, innocent people like Michael Bloomberg's daughter or, or Bruce Springsteen's daughter, this innocent, hardworking women who want to ride horses, the salt of the earth, Bruce Springsteen's Olympic riding daughter, can't get ivermectin. Uh, they can't get ivermectin for their horses. Yeah. And either can uh, the kids in India. So they're going to go blind. I read more about horses not being able to get ivermectin in America than I do about all the third world kids who can't get their hands on ivermectin so they don't get river blindness. We care more about horses in America than we do about children, unless they're the children of the rich, like Michael Bloomberg's daughter or Bruce Springsteen's daughter, and they're riding a horse, in which case we wouldn't want them to get river blindness. One in every 500 Americans has died of COVID-19. <laughs> Did you see the Emmys last night? They weren't wearing masks. They weren't wearing masks. No, but they, but they insisted the, <laughs> they were vaccinated because you can trust people. You can trust agents and managers and lawyers in Hollywood who will look at a contract and say, we're not going to uh, we're not going to pay you this. I know it says we're going to pay you this, but we have all these lawyers and it's just going to cost you way too much to get what we promised. So this is what we're going to pay you and you're going to take it because you can't afford the lawyers that we can. Right. That's Hollywood. That's how it was built. But we're supposed to believe everyone who shows up to the Emmys when they say, oh, I'm vaccinated. One in every 500 U.S. residents has died of COVID-19. And the Democrats wonder why everybody hates them. They, they, they cannot wait to suck at the teat of Hollywood. They're fully vaccinated, but say they choose to mask up when out to protect their immune-compromised four-month-old. But once inside... Our waitress came over, sat down next to me and said, so our manager sent us over because I am nicer than he is. And yes, this is very political, but you need to take your mask off. No masks allowed. It's a policy you don't hear often during the pandemic, but the owner says he considers it part of the dress code. I spent my money on this business. Blood, sweat, and tears in this business. And I don't want any mass in here. I put my money into this business. I put my hair into this business. I put my brain cells into this business. And I don't want any masks in here. I want to eat at that restaurant. That sounds no food poisoning there, right? 
those are the hygiene requirements of the customers. You can't wear a mask. Imagine what their kitchen looks like. So means no masks in the kitchen. And I'm pretty sure this guy's such a libertarian. If you go into the men's room, there's no sign that says employees must wash hands, right? Hey, what happened to my <laughs> what happened to my freedoms? I do not like to wash my hands after I go to the bathroom. And I these hand washing mandates are an invasion of my privacy. It's tyrannical. The first thing Hitler did when he took over was he mandated that all employees must wash hands after they go to the bathroom. I don't want to wash my hands after I go to the bathroom. I'm proud of my effluvium. And nobody is going to tell me to wear a mask. Nobody's going to tell me to wipe. And nobody's going to tell me to wash my hands after I go to the bathroom in the restaurant where I serve and touch people's food. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the COVID situation so far. It's a laugh riot. We are almost getting back up to Christmas. It's um, looking at a New York Times chart where we're looking at roughly 250,000, 270,000 new cases each day in uh, back around Christmas time. Now it's the beginning of September. We're looking at, I don't know, close to 180,000 new cases every day. And it is a it is a uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's why these, that's why it's going up. It's because people won't, won't get vaccinated. So why is that? Why won't people get vaccinated? I think there's a lot of, a lot of hatred towards the medical establishment and rightfully so. So I've said this on the show before, the Democrats, Joe Biden should look at anti-vaxxers and say, you know what? I agree with your hatred for the pharmaceutical companies. I agree with you, but you're wrong on this one. But here's what we are going to do. We're going to force the pharmaceutical companies to negotiate with us in Medicare Part D. We're going to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Instead of targeting anti-vaxxers and understanding why they hate the medical community, why they hate the insurance companies, and why, of course, they hate Big Pharma. The Democrats think the anti-vaxxers are a basket of deplorables who cannot be won over. You have to use their rage and bring them over to our side. It's good that people hate Big Pharma. If you know, Bernie could do this. Bernie could talk to the anti-vaxxers and say, because he doesn't have contempt for anti-vaxxers. He understands that a lot of people don't get vaccinated because they can't afford to take a day off from work. They can't afford the child care. They can't, there, there, there isn't a site that is around where they work. They'd have to get on the bus 
for three hours to go get vaccinated. They can't afford. We don't have paid sick leave in America. The day after you get that second shot, some people don't feel so hot, so they're not going to want to go in to, to work. Well, we don't have paid sick leave, right? A lot of people are just can't afford the luxury of a free vaccination in this country. That's how bankrupt we are. And Bernie would understand that. I've been really angry at the anti-vaxxers because uh, I'm insensitive. And, and I'm, I'm not mad at the anti-vaxxers. I'm mad at the people like Joe Rogan or Jimmy, who's pushing ivermectin, or raising questions about ivermectin. Those are the people I really have a, a, a quarrel with. The people who on their deathbed say, I didn't get vaccinated, don't be, don't be a schmuck like me, get vaccinated. I don't delight in that. The disc jockeys or the AM shot, the, the, you know, Phil Valentine, the, uh, those you know, AM radio hosts who tell people not to get vaccinated, they can't die soon enough for me. But the regular Americans who trust these charlatans who and then end up dying that, that i find to be sad and i also think bernie if he were president would be able to talk to the anti-vaxxers and win some of them over we could win some of them over not all of them but some of them so why do people not want their vaccines they don't trust their doctors they don't trust their insurance companies they don't believe it when the president of the United States says, if you have COVID, it'll be free because it isn't. Remember, we were told that if you have COVID, go to the hospital. We know you're broke. We know you're sick of surprise bills, but we're going to kill this disease. And the only way we can kill it is if you go to the hospital and you will not be billed for your COVID treatment. Well, according to the Washington Post headline, the days of full COVID coverage are over. Insurers are restoring deductibles and co-pays, leaving patients with big bills. Large insurance companies waived cost sharing for coronavirus care in 2020, but it has sprung back in 2021. That's right. Anthem, Blue Cross, all the health insurance companies, Aetna, record profits in 2020. You know why? Because everybody was paying their insurance premiums, but they weren't going to the hospital. Did they lower your insurance premiums? Some some car insurers lowered your your premiums because they were because nobody was driving and they didn't think it was fair to charge so much for car insurance if you weren't using your car. Nobody was using their health insurance last year because we were all too terrified to go to the hospital. So the health insurance companies made a had their best year ever because nobody was getting elective surgery and nobody was getting their lump looked at. So the insurance companies made out like who they are, bandits. They were told and they promised not to charge anybody for COVID. You know, the rest of the industrialized world doesn't charge for COVID. Well, profits, got to have profits in this country. So the insurance companies, you got to pay your deductibles now. Surprise bills for your COVID. 
That's but but you're wringing your hands over Americans not getting vaccinated. People are waiting to the last minute to get their covid looked at because of the health insurance companies. That's a bigger problem than anti-vaxxers. And if you're broke and you owe $50,000 to a hospital and it's in the system, you're going to be a little reluctant to go to your doctor. You're going to be afraid to go to your doctor if you owe $50,000 in unpaid medical bills. Unbelievable. Days of full coverage are over. And where are the doctors and all this, the healers? Doctors, nobody really goes into medicine to make money. Why aren't they speaking up? The nurses are, but the doctors aren't. Well, it turns out they're too busy committing suicide. Did you know that doctors have the highest suicide rate of any profession? I wonder why. I wonder why doctors have the highest suicide rate of any profession. What could be depressing them? According to Medscape, there is one suicide every day on average committed by a physician in the United States. Medscape says U.S. physicians have the highest suicide rate of any physician. Their suicide rate is more than twice that of the general population. New research shows. Medscape goes on to write a systemic literature review of physician suicide shows that the suicide rate among physicians is 28 to 40 per 100,000. That's more than double that in the general population. You want to lower the suicide rate for physicians? Medicare for all. That's got to play havoc on your psyche. Having to deal with 99% of your patients not being able to afford the treatment they deserve. And the ones who can afford it, the insurance companies wait them out, hoping they're going to die before they approve whatever they need. That's why doctors have the highest suicide rate in America, because of these health insurance companies. Why doesn't the AMA speak up and protect the doctors? They are depressed. This is one of the most depressed. Being a doctor is the most depressing job in America. There, there is no bigger proof than this. Physicians experience highest suicide rate of any profession. Why? Because we don't have Medicare for all. Are the doctors in this country so stupid they can't see the relationship between their suicide rate and being forced to deny coverage and treatment to 99% of their patients because the insurance companies have a stranglehold over their business? This is a really diseased country when, when even doctors can't take care of themselves. We have doctors in New York who can't afford health insurance. What about a general strike? Why, why can't these effing doctors do what the nurses are doing and go on strike? 
How many doctors have to commit suicide? Nobody goes into medicine to make money. And if and if you did go into medicine to make money, you shouldn't be in medicine. I mean, Jesus Christ. Physicians experience highest suicide rate of any profession. Medicare for all would would cure that. And and if you're a doctor who doesn't understand that the way to cure the suicide rate among physicians is Medicare for all, you should have your license revoked. Get with the, the these doctors in America. This is why people are anti-vaxxing. Well, Georgia, Georgia, hotspots. You were looking at the hotspots in Georgia. COVID is spreading through Georgia. And it's uh, not as bad as Florida, but it's pretty bad. And they have a governor there who stole the election from Stacey Abrams. His name is Brian Kemp. He was the secretary of state in Georgia, which means he counted the votes and he was running against African-American Stacey Abrams. I think this was what, two years ago, Democrat. He scrubbed something like 50,000 votes. Voters from the rolls made it impossible for African-Americans to vote. He stole the election from Stacey Abrams. And uh, he's now the governor. He's now the governor of Georgia. He was asked as a loyal Republican what he thought the answer is to, to COVID. You know, do you do you believe in vaccines? Don't you? Shouldn't you be encouraging, forcing people to get vaccinated? And, you know, he's for vaccines. But he doesn't think people should be forced to get them. Here's why. We've had vaccines for measles, for polio, for smallpox, for swine flu. How is this different? Well, I think it's different in a lot of ways because it's so new. Uh, even though it's very safe, it's very effective. We know that. I believe that. There are people that have doubt that's out there because they haven't been uh, all three fully authorized yet. And then mixed right. messaging right. out of the Biden administration. And plus, just like the AIDS vaccine, mandate net didn't work. It only worked when they started educating people why it was a good idea. That's what we need to continue to do uh, with the COVID vaccine. I'm sorry. Did, did you say there, there, there's a vaccine? What did you say about AIDS? Just like the AIDS vaccine. There's a, you know, I'm sorry. I, boy, I am. Uh, the what? The AIDS vaccine. Okay, so you're saying that there's a vaccine for AIDS Really? They, they've come up with vaccine, a, va- a vaccine for AIDS. OK, <laughs> wow. So I guess we just need to go slowly. You're saying that with the AIDS vaccine, people were reluctant at first to get the AIDS vaccine. Governor Kemp of Georgia. And uh, if we go slowly with it, if we go slowly with the covid vaccine, the way we did with the AIDS vaccine, what? 
Just like the AIDS vaccine. Yeah. Okay. We uh, just go slowly with COVID, just like the AIDS vaccine. How do these people, how do you, okay. It's the governor of Georgia. That's the guy who doctors, That's the, he gets to determine mask mandates and vaccine mandates. He's the one who says, yeah, we can open up the schools. This is uh, the AIDS vaccine. That's the guy who's going to determine whether or not the schools in Georgia are open. Interesting. Kemp stole the election from Stacey Abrams, who graduated from Harvard. That should tell you something. He stole the election and he's trying to make it harder for everybody to vote. He he is convinced that if you make it impossible to vote, Republicans win. But maybe not. The Wall Street Journal had a story yesterday entitled Some Republicans Fear Tighter Election Rules Could Boomerang on the Party. Hmm. In Michigan, GOP officials are cautioning against tougher absentee voting laws, in part because it might discourage their own voters from casting ballots. See, that was one of the things I noticed in 2020 about absentee ballots. Donald Trump wanted everybody to vote on Election Day. But Republicans are just as lazy as Democrats. They like mail-in ballots. So making it harder to, to fill out and drop off a mail-in ballot may end up also hurting Republicans. According to the Wall Street Journal, since the 2020 election, Republicans in state legislatures have been tightening rules around voting and ballot security. They've passed more than 100 pieces of legislation in 24 states controlled by Republicans. Now, some Republicans in Michigan are saying that these voter rules may not be the best thing, that they may hurt our own party at the ballot box, because that's why you make voting laws to benefit your own party, not democracy. You you make sure that you pass voting laws that are beneficial to whoever controls the, the legislature. Now, the Wall Street Journal goes on to write, but survey data suggests those 2020 results were an outlier. In 2016, for instance, the use of mail-in ballots, I, I, I should spell out that in 2020, more Democrats used mail-in ballots than Republicans. But it's an outlier, according to the Wall Street Journal. In 2016, the journal writes, the use of mail-in ballots was split fairly evenly between Democrats and Republicans. 26% of Democrats versus 23% of Republicans used mail-in ballots. That's according to the Cooperative Congressional Election Study. Interesting. Well, it sounds like Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp, it sounds like tightening people's ability to vote could end up like... Just like the AIDS vaccine. Yeah, just like the AIDS vaccine. Uh, 
voter fraud. Isn't voter fraud? Just like the AIDS vaccine. Right. It, it doesn't exist. Right. I think that's what you're basically saying. All right. Well, there is uh, a uh, senator from Louisiana. He's a Republican named John Kennedy. No relationship to President John Kennedy or no no relationship to reality whatsoever. As you know, bad things are happening on the border. Very sad things are happening on the border. And Senator John Kennedy was on Fox and he's very upset with what's going on with all these Haitians trying to get into America. Look, I regret having to say this, but when it comes to illegal immigration, you just can't trust the Biden administration. Uh, it would be like trusting uh, Harvey Weinstein with your daughter. I regret having to say this. I regret having to say this. I, I wanted to say it was like trusting Matt Gates with your daughter instead of Harvey Weinstein, but I couldn't. So I regret having to, to do that joke. I regret having to say this. I regret having to say this. I regret having to say this. My friend's daughter works in my DC office and she came up with that line and I, I think I have a chance. So if I use her line, maybe, maybe she'll uh, have sex with me. But I do, I, I regret having to say this. But I regret having to say this. That's what he regrets. He doesn't regret sending Haitians back to Haiti to face God knows what. Well, so is Joe Biden. Joe Biden and uh, Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, who happens to be a refugee from Cuba. Uh, his family came over from Cuba. He's the new head of Homeland Security. He's also Jewish. So he's familiar with what it's like to be a refugee. Our head of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, and Joe Biden are sending Haitian refugees back to Haiti. They're down along the Mexican border. And there were some pictures that the Associated Press came out with. These are taken by Felix Marquez. He's been with the Haitian refugees. This is, uh, these are Haitian refugees uh, walking across the Rio Grande. They leave Del Rio, Texas and head towards uh, Acuna, Mexico, Ciudad Acuna, uh, Acuna City, I don't know what that means, to shop for food and supplies. And then they come back to America where they wait to be, be taken in by Americans. This is a little Haitian girl. Her father is holding her as he walks across the Rio Grande uh, to go to Mexico to get some food and supplies. And then they will come back later with the hope that our country will wel welcome them like they welcomed all four of my grandparents. But we don't welcome refugees anymore. There was just a 7.2 earthquake in Haiti, immense poverty. There's the threat of a civil war going on right now in 
We don't believe in uh, political asylum for Haitian refugees. This is, uh, these, this is U.S. Customs and Border Protection on mounted horses. These are photographs taken by Felix Marquez. He's with Associated Press. And, and these are our uh, immigration people, cowboys. They got their cowboy hat on and literally treating these Haitian refugees like cattle. This is your, uh, your tax dollars at work. So for my podcast listeners, I recommend you look at this on YouTube. This is one of uh, our immigration officers on a horse, dressed like a cowboy. He's got his chaps on, and he's rounding up a Haitian with rope. And look at what these two Haitians are carrying. They, they, they're coming back from Mexico. They're getting supplies, food. Looks like a lot of food. They picked up food for everybody. That's your tax dollars at work. We should be very proud. We should be very proud. Well, <clears throat> January 6th was the insurrection, and it looked like last Saturday was going to be insurrection Part two. This was scary. We were all on high alert because they were coming back to Washington, and this time they meant it. You certainly can't ignore any chatter. Thomas O'Connor was an FBI agent for 23 years on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. He says law enforcement must overprepare. Capitol Hill on high alert tonight, barricaded behind a seven-foot-tall steel fence. The U.S. Capitol on high alert hours ahead of a rally supporting the January 6th rioters. Security is tight in Washington this morning ahead of a highly anticipated rally. The National Guard called in police bracing for possible violence. This will be the biggest. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you can't be too cautious, right? You, you just have to be on high alert. And, well, what happened? Nothing. There were more police officers than there were protesters, more reporters than there were protesters. So... You can get all the intelligence you want, and they did get intelligence. They were told that this was going to be huge. You certainly can't ignore any chatter. Thomas O'Connor of a small number of recent bulletin obtained by CBS News. The Department of Homeland Security is aware of a small number of recent online threats of violence connected to the rally and found online discussions encouraging violence the day before. According to the bulletin, social media users discussed storming the Capitol the night before the rally. And other references to violence included using the rally to target Jewish institutions, elected officials, and liberal churches. What I'm most worried about and still worry about is the threat that we do not know about. That's the threat that's going to... The threat that we don't know about. We have to just throw everything. We, you know, we have intelligence. We have homeland security. We have the greatest national security state in the history of civilization. We just assume the NSA is listening in on our conversations. We have drones circling over us. We're being monitored. 
we have all the information. We really do. Well, not always. August 26, 2021, 13 American soldiers were killed at the were killed at the airport in Kabul by a terrorist from ISIS-K. That was uh, their parting shot to us as we left. They killed 13 soldiers. And President Biden, on August 26, said this. To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I've also ordered my commanders to develop operational plans to strike ISIS-K assets, leadership, and facilities. We will respond with force and precision at our time, at the place we choose, in the moment of our choosing. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. We will do it on our clock. We'll we'll assess the situation. We'll find out where ISIS-K is headquartered and located. We, We have the intelligence and we will avenge the deaths of those 13 soldiers. And we did. We we killed, we were told we killed the people who killed our soldiers. In fact, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, gave a somber but somewhat proud assessment of the strike. The procedures were correctly followed and it was a righteous strike. Yes, the procedures were correctly followed and it was a righteous strike. General Kenneth F. McKenzie Jr. Uh, from Central Command, U.S. Central Command, uh, tell us about this strike. At the time of the strike, based upon all the intelligence and what was being reported, I was confident that the strike had averted an imminent threat to our forces at the airport. That's great. So it was a righteous strike, and you were confident that's... General Kenneth F. McKenzie Jr., who's the head of uh, Central Command over there, you don't get to be the head of Central Command if you can't read intelligence reports. So it was a righteous strike, according to our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I like the word righteous. It means it was uh, God was on our side. Righteous, right? We did the right thing. Righteous. And and uh, General McKenzie was confident the strike had averted an imminent threat at the airport. So they were preventing another terrorist attack because, you know, we have to protect everybody and we have the intelligence. We, we know what's going on in Afghanistan. So why not? Uh, well, tell me more about the strike. Based upon that assessment, I and other leaders in the department repeatedly asserted the validity of this strike. So you asserted the validity of this strike. Let me, that's Pentagonese. So basically you're saying, I I ordered the strike, is is what you said. You're saying, I ordered this strike. It was my, under my command, under my orders. I'm the head of Central Command in that theater. So I was for uh, the strike. Now, I didn't know that there was a vaccine for AIDS. I'm not completely up to speed on what's going on in the world. 
there's some confusion as to what happened on the, the 26th with the airstrike? I'm here today to set the record straight. Good, good. Okay, we're going to set the record straight. This is good. This is unlike ISIS-K. They don't, they don't set the record straight. That we are a civilized people. We're Americans and we have, we spend a trillion dollars a year on our defense department and, and we have press spokesmen who, who are, it's a free and open society and you're going to set the record straight so there'll be no confusion about uh, what happened. So we were told that you killed the ISIS-K terrorists who murdered our 13 soldiers at Kabul airport. While the team conducted the strike, did so in the honest belief that they were preventing an imminent attack on our forces and civilian evacuees, we now understand that to be incorrect. Hmm. Did you use the word honest? I think you used the word honest and, and righteous. And uh, so it sounds like we're good people. It sounds like we, we, you good people. It's a righteous strike. I just don't understand what happened. A comprehensive review of all the available footage and reporting on the matter led us to a final conclusion. Okay, so you've been kind of, I don't, I don't really know what you're saying. So you, you've reviewed the evidence after the strike. You, this is important because you reviewed all the evidence before the strike, before you decided to attack these ISIS-K members who killed our soldiers. So now you've done a study of, you've done a post-mortem, if you will, to see how it turned out. And, uh, well, set the record straight. That as many as 10 civilians were killed in the strike, including up to seven children. 10 civilians were killed. It, so that wasn't ISIS-K. You, you killed 10 civilians in... Uh, in the strike, and you didn't get ISIS-K. You didn't get the people who killed our soldiers. You killed 10, wait, well, hang on, you said 10 civilians and what? Seven children. Seven children, you killed seven, you killed. Okay, we killed seven uh, children. Uh, we now understand that to be incorrect. Yeah. So it wasn't ISIS-K. It was... Uh, seven children. Wow. You killed seven children. That's, uh, that's, that's kind of weird. You know, Roe v. Wade is going to be heard before the Supreme Court in December. Texas just passed this abortion bill. I mean, this is a, a nation that is pro-life. Seven children. Yeah, you killed seven children. Uh, wow. I, I honestly thought that you, the way it was presented to us, that you killed uh, the ISIS-K members who killed our soldiers, but instead you killed... Seven children. Yeah, you killed... What? How many? Seven children. So, interesting. Uh, well, uh, this is, uh, General McKenzie, he killed seven children. He gave the command. And, uh, so 
shouldn't you be exploring the possibility of churning yourself in? How many, uh, how many did you kill? Seven children. Yeah. Uh, shouldn't you be turning yourself in? Isn't that the way it, it usually works? Shouldn't you be exploring at least your resignation? We are exploring the possibility of ex gratia payments. I don't know what that means. Other than you're not taking responsibility for for what you did. You killed how many? How many? Seven children. So for the rest of your life, you have to live with the fact that you gave an order, you read the intelligence, and you made a mistake resulting in the death of? Seven children. And you're not resigning. You're not resigning. That's interesting. Uh, you should be resigning. Uh, seems to me that's the way these things are supposed to go. You kill. Seems to me if you kill. Seven children. Yeah. If you kill seven children because of your incompetence, and incompetence often is because you just don't care, or you were seeking revenge and you just rolled the dice, you're, you should be relieved of your duties. And uh, My Lai, the My Lai Massacre, that took place on March 16th, 1968, and several hundred Vietnamese were murdered by our soldiers. It was a massacre. And they didn't get prosecuted for it because they were just following orders. That's the truth. Now, the Nuremberg trials that came after World War II, our military was instructed that you cannot get away with massacres by saying, I was just following orders. According to the Nuremberg trials and, and the laws that were enshrined in our military afterwards, no member of the military in America can participate in a massacre and say, I was just following orders. The My Lai massacre in 68, turns out you can get off by saying, I was just following orders. They did prosecute this guy, William Calley. He was court-martialed. He was found guilty of the murder of 22 Vietnamese civilians. There were hundreds, close to 500 civilians massacred that day, March 1968. They could prove that William Calley killed 22 Vietnamese civilians, and he was sentenced to life in prison. But everything's political, and many, many on the right believed that Callie, Lieutenant Callie, was a scapegoat. And so he was paroled in 1974. He served three years under house arrest for those murders. And they really didn't feel like locking him up for life because he was only giving orders. You know, the defense is I was only following orders. We you know, like the Nazis, our, our soldiers are now you commit a massacre. You can say I was only following orders. And in America, you can say I was only giving orders. That's also uh, an excuse for not being 
prosecuted. So Callie killed uh, how many? He killed 22 Vietnamese civilians that we could prove. And uh, how many did you kill, General McKenzie? Seven children. Hmm. Interesting. You killed uh, seven children. Are we going to prosecute you? I mean, certainly, certainly America learns from its mistakes. Certainly a general who killed seven children that we know of is going to be prosecuted for this. And I, you know who probably has something to say about this? You know who we should check in with? William Cohen. William Cohen used to be the Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton. He was a Republican senator. So this is this is a guy we can trust. He's bipartisan. He can reach across the aisle. William Cohn. He was a Republican senator from Maine, but he's a good guy. He, when he was a congressperson, a Republican, he voted to impeach Richard Nixon when he served on the House Judiciary Committee. William Cohn is a problem solver. He he's a straight shooter. And like I said, he was Secretary of Defense in Bill Clinton's White House. He was a Republican in a Democrat, Democratic Party White House. You can trust him. And uh, I think we should listen to William Cohn because he was on CNN and I'm sure he's going to get to the bottom of this. I just want to pause long enough to say how this affected me uh, to see these this family wiped out. Yes, let's pause long enough to learn how this affected you, William Cohn, former defense secretary, William Cohn, because that's the first thing I thought when I heard about seven children getting killed by our military. The first thing I thought was, I wonder how this affects William Cohen personally. That's the first thing I needed to know because William Cohen is a sensitive man and, you know, he's going to be affected personally when our military kills seven. How many, how many uh, did, did we kill? How many? Seven children. Right. You, you killed seven children. Yes. You, you did it. Your mistake killed seven children, right? Uh, and you're still, you still haven't resigned. So uh, anyway, Bill Cohen, former Secretary of Defense, elder statesman, very compassionate, caring man. And we know he's got to be upset because he voted to impeach Richard Nixon, even though Richard Nixon was a Republican and William Cohen was a Republican. This is an honorable man. He's going to demand a thorough court-martial and trial. And Americans who ordered this airstrike are going to be held accountable. So let's listen to former Pentagon chief William Cohen. It seems to me when something like this happens, you can expect the reaction is going to be very negative. Wow, so wise. This is why it's important to, to listen to our elder states people like William Cohen. This is good. Everybody, lessons learned. Lessons learned. Write this down. There's going to be a negative reaction when you kill how, how many? How, how, how many? Seven children. Mm. Okay. So there's going to be a negative reaction uh, 
to killing seven children. Uh, that's interesting. I'm glad we learned that, William Cohen. Uh, so go on. Tell us uh, the reaction is going to be negative and uh, go on. When we launch these strikes to be as careful as we possibly can and nothing is ever uh, perfect. I know that I've been on the other end of this in terms of having launched uh, strikes based on bad intelligence. Oh, wait a second. You've been on the other end of this. You mean you were you were attacked by our military? No, no. Oh, you you attacked others based on bad intelligence. I see. So you're a war criminal as well. You ordered airstrikes. This is as this is pretty much what you're saying, that you ordered airstrikes based on bad intelligence. So you seem pretty forgiving of yourself. It's interesting. You ordered airstrikes based on bad intelligence, which probably ended up with dead babies. Yeah. Dead yeah. babies. Yeah. When we launch these strikes to be as careful as we possibly can. And nothing is ever uh, perfect. I know that I've been on the other end of this in terms of having launched uh, strikes based on bad intelligence. Yeah. Bad intelligence results in dead babies. And, and we when don't we launch these strikes to be as careful as we possibly can. Yeah, we, we were as careful. We're always as careful as we possibly can to make sure that there are no dead babies. When we launch these strikes to be as careful as we possibly can. Careful as we possibly can. So forgiving of our, ourselves, aren't we? We're so forgiving. You're uh, part of the cover-up. You know, Me Lai, there was a cover-up for Me Lai, and there'll be a cover-up for... Seven children. Dead babies! Yeah. Dead babies! Yeah. When we launch these strikes to be as careful. Yeah. We love babies in America. Yeah. So tell me... Being on the other side of this, tell me what you've learned as, as a defense secretary. I remember that Don Rumsfeld, former secretary of defense, uh, once said uh, he worried, were we, kill, were we creating more terrorists than we were killing uh, in Iraq? Let me answer that question for you. Yes, you're creating more terrorists than you're killing. That's generally the way it works, William Cohn. When, when you kill seven kids, uh, well, what happens when you kill seven kids? If I were that family that had just been wiped out, uh, I wouldn't be looking for um, uh, any kind of compensation, uh, any kind of reparations. I'd be looking for revenge. And I think that's the thing that we have to worry about. Yeah, I think that's the thing we have to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Ter terrorists just don't wake up one day and decide to kill Americans. They're probably, they're probably wanting to kill Americans because of dead babies. When we launch these strikes. Yeah, dead babies. And uh, so it's interesting. William Cohen was introduced as a former defense secretary. What uh, Wolf Blitzer didn't mention is that he's also a lobbyist. He has his own, what, wrong. 
Get babies. Where are you? Uh, I have. Let me find this. He's with the Cohen Group. He formed his own lobbying group. It's called the Cohen Group. I don't have the graphics for it. And he lobbies for radon and other arms manufacturers. But he wasn't identified. William Cohen was identified as a former Pentagon chief. He wasn't, he wasn't brought on as a lobbyist for the military industrial complex, which William Cohen is. He helps Radon and other arms dealers sell, sell weapons. So you're one of the larger lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Nobody knows that. And it's your job to be forgiving of errant airstrikes that results in dead babies. Yeah, that's your job. Dead babies. Yeah, that's your job. Your job is to make dead babies seem palatable. And uh, you create terrorism. You're, you, you are a terrorist. You breed terrorism. And it's a, it's a, it's a nice job that you have. You get millions of dollars. You don't tell anybody that you're selling weapons to the American people. You have this measured cadence that assures us all that, you know, this is war. We do our best. Mistakes are made. But let's not cry over dead babies. You know, let's, we're a forward-looking people. Let's just pour another trillion dollars this year into our weapons that result in what is it? Dead babies. Yeah. Let's just uh, pour another trill trillion dollars into dead babies. And, you know, it's a virtuous cycle because we make dead babies, right, with the weapons you're selling, William Cohen, right? We make dead babies and then people want revenge, right? So they attack us, right, because of their dead babies. And guess what? We have to attack them. So that means we have to buy more weapons. It's a virtuous cycle you got going there on K Street, William Cohen. You should be very proud of yourself working, taking all that expertise you accrued as a Pentagon chief and speaking up for the arms manufacturers who are responsible for dead babies. All right. This is uh, the latest on our Twitter poll. Uh, I asked you on my Twitter account to pick the more vile corn-filled effluvium. Is it Mnuchin or Manchin? 25% say Mnuchin. 75% of people who follow me on Twitter say it's Joe Manchin. So go to Twitter right now. You can vote. Everybody can vote. My Twitter handle is at David Feldman. And follow me on Twitter. When we come back, we are going to talk to Howie Klein and we're going to meet the next Congress person from Staten Island. 
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell. That was a song written by Professor Mike Steinell. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Let us now go to Los Angeles, where the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, Howie Klein, I hope, is standing by. I'm here. You're there. Oh, good. And, and is it true that I have you for an hour tonight? No. Oh, I thought I had you at 7 o'clock as well. I just get you from. Um, oh, is that, is that no, no, no? I, 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 I didn't realize that. I thought what we were going to do is we were going to. Yeah, I thought this is a little early for calling me. I got it. I, I didn't pay close enough attention. Well, when I, here's you, the thing. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna meet. I I made a request before we introduce our very special guest. We have a very mm-hmm. special guest who's going to be the next congressperson from Staten Island, New York. But and, I, and you know what? Why don't we do? Why don't you and I like talk now, uh, and then when when she comes on, uh, well, I'll int- and then get on my way. Well, how, why don't we do this then? Why don't I talk to her and call you back at seven? Okay, is she there now? She's there right now. Do you want to say hello? Hi. <laughs> yes. Hi, Howie. I'm not Kenny. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm on. Yes, you are. Nice to see you. Except I don't. Um, so yeah, and and thanks for writing all that great stuff for uh, for my blog. I very much appreciate it, and, and my readers do too. I got a really really good response. I, that's why I call I I requested Brittany Ramos Tabatos is a you served in the military, and next year you're going to be serving in Washington D.C. representing the great island of Staten, where. Uh, <laughs> Is it named Staten Island because it, right. lo- it lowers your cholesterol? That's where all the statins are. So, Howie, why don't I do this? I'll call you back at seven because I was okay. hoping I was hoping for an hour with you, but that's okay. We'll we'll, we'll talk in a half hour. I get dizzy uh, after half an hour. Okay, thank you. We'll talk in a half hour. And thank you for introducing me to Brittany. Thank Great, you. Uh, Great, thank you. 
and David, um, could you do me a favor and ask people to donate to her campaign as well? Yes, of course. I Thank will. you. Yes. I'll talk to you at, at yes, seven. At seven o'clock. Thank you, Howie Klein. Coming up at seven o'clock, we will be talking with Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny. He also is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Right now, let's say hello to Brittany Ramos de Bados. I'm probably butchering your, your name. You are a candidate for New York's 11th congressional district. Please go to BrittanyForThePeople.org and give her money right now. Howie Klein, if Howie Klein says, give Brittany Ramos de Bados money, you give her money. BrittanyForThePeople.org. Welcome, Brittany. Oh, you're, you're talking over. I can't, I can't hear you over the, the applause. Pause for applause. Pause Sorry. for applause, yes. Sorry. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And it's so nice when other people make the fundraising asks on your behalf. And, you know, I really appreciate it because we're coming up on a deadline and we really do need the support. Right. So what did you wear to the Met Gala? <laughs> uh, I believe I was in sweatpants and a hoodie <laughs> if I was wearing pants at all. So <laughs> uh, I was comfy in my home. Um <laughs> It, well, we're going to uh, talk about serious stuff in a second. Yeah. But when they go after AOC for, quote unquote, hypocrisy, showing up to the Met Gala as though that's hypocritical, you can only if you can't argue with somebody on the issues, you have to find hypocrisy. It's it's a it's a poor man's rhetoric and poor man. I, I mean, like stupid, not poor. It's just a cheap, mm. there's nothing wrong with going to the Met Gala and having fun. Socialists believe in museums. They believe in <laughs> costumes. And while you're getting all that attention, why not have your ass emblazoned with, emblazoned with tax the rich? So are you yeah. a socialist? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, would fairly describe me that way. I've been doing work speaking about the problems with capitalism that are inherent for a long time. And I'm I'm a very pragmatic person. For me, I feel like the left and all of us need to be less focused on the labels that we call ourselves and more focused on how do we reach everyday working class people. And, you know, as the Poor People's Campaign says, unite the poor. Mm -hmm. That is our work. Right. Is not about, you know, kind of signaling, oh, I'm this label. I'm, a, you know, I'm a perfect socialist or I'm a perfect Democrat or a democratic socialist or any of these things. You know, I mean, and if that's if any of those labels are fit for you, fantastic. Good for you. You know, um, for me, I think that I tend to be a person who, you know, I really care about reaching the unreached. I really care about speaking in language that that is accessible and really reaches folks in ways that don't compromise our values, in ways that, yes, bring people in and build power for everyday people. Um, and I think sometimes when we get caught up in jargon um, and all of these labels, we create deeper divisions in places where we should be deepening 
unity, right? And I don't mean a false, shallow sense of unity. I mean the deep unity that comes from principled struggles with each other around how are we going to relate to each other. And, you know, I did tweet about AOC um, saying that I thought that her dress was fine and I liked the stunt and it was the most controversial tweet of my entire campaign so far, which it was about a dress. Uh, right. so I thought that was shocking and concerning, to be honest with you. But um, but I empathize. I empathize with my friends who, you know, feel really offended and feel um, like she hasn't been doing enough. And that, I think, is where their frustration comes from. But I also am someone who believes that we have to like sometimes I wonder if folks really from a power analysis really resonate with what we're up against. We have all of the decks, the, the, the decks stacked, the decks stacked against us. Um, and I just, I'm a person who in that case believes that we should be using every tactic, every strategy, every resource at our disposal to advance the cause of organizing working class people and building our political power. Um, and, and the so way I you organize, that, the way you organize people is music, Costume, culture, fun, culture. The right loves to paint the left as these dour, doer, miserable people in Mao jumpsuits. And there's no joy. Joy is <sighs> how can you, you have to have the weight of the world on your shoulders. And that's not what the left is. The, it's so true. You, it's, it's, I know. It's all about in, it's all about happiness. It's all about celebrating, making sure that people have the time to go to the museum so you don't have to work 14 hours. Yeah. And, you know, I think that when we elect people to power to fight for us, then what we want them to do, right, we're sending them into a lion's den of a system that was not designed. Well, let, for let's talk about the lion. Let's talk about right? you. Let's talk about you. Let's talk sure. about you. So you are a, a veteran, an army combat veteran. You come from an ar- an army family. I just spent the last half hour really going after our military and the uh, the seven kids that we killed using drones. Uh, so we have a lot of soldiers who we who we owe everything to. They have coming home with PTSD and like Vietnam, maybe even worse, we're, we're, they're being told this was for a noble cause. Uh, I, I want to ask you some difficult questions about this because we've infantilized the infantry. infantry. We've infantilized the American people when it comes to war. We don't see... this. The only reason we're paying attention to this drone strike is because it was the last one. This stuff has been going on for 20 years. We've killed something like 25, 27,000 civilians in the global war on terror that we know of because the Pentagon doesn't keep track. It's air wars that keeps track. You can't be critical of the military in the United States because we don't have a draft. So there's a compact between ordinary citizens and the people who serve. And that is you're automatically heroes. You're doing what I'm too chicken to do. So 
we can't criticize the military. We did when there was a draft because everybody had skin in that game. But now the deal is you serve in the military and we if it's it's unpatriotic to criticize the drone strikes. Is it unpatriotic to go after General McKenzie and uh, General Milley? Is that uh, disloyal? I mean, I think if we're going to frame things in the terms of patriotism, then we should think of that as incredibly patriotic, right? I think that we should think of that as a patriotic duty. Um, Because I think that the moral crisis that I felt when I deployed as a, a true believer, and I really... I really thought that I was going to go help the Afghan people and that I was going to fight for freedom and democracy and all these things that were told in all of these, you know, military ads and video games and recruiters in our schools and Hollywood movies on which the DOD consulted, right, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I knew that there were problems, but I thought overall we were still really doing, you know, doing the right thing. Um and when I got there, it was so obvious that we were doing so much more harm than good. What years were you there? I, what years were you there? 2012 to 2013. 2012 and to 2013. That was Obama's deployment. That's right. And I was actually, yeah, my orders were uh, withdrawal operations, um, transition operations in support of the impending withdrawal. Um, because we, you know, the Obama-Biden administration had run on the promise that we were leaving Afghanistan by 2014, no matter what, right? They swore up and down, these other guys, they have conditions, not us. We're leaving in 2014, no matter what. Um, And here we are, you know, 10 years later. um, And, you know, it's, Uh, So I think that this is an important nuance is that I think withdrawing is the right thing, right? We needed to leave. We were not helping. We were doing far more harm than good. And if the way that we left didn't prove that we, you know, were not there with genuine concern for the for the lives of Afghan people, then I don't know how that's of any doubt at this point. Um, And. I, you know, I think that I think that what we saw in the nature of this withdrawal operation, though, was a real lack of, dis, you know, lack of regard for um, Afghan people and even the American citizens who are stuck there. And even, the, you know, the Afghan people who literally worked for us for years. And, you know, what I saw when I was there was the way that corporations were really running the show. It was wild. We had, you know, I was part of an engineer battalion and. We had mechanics who were fully capable, for example, of fixing our MRAPs when they were down. And I remember just sitting, being sitting ducks for a week while we waited for the corporate mechanics to come work on our vehicles because there was a part of their corporate contract dictated that only their mechanics were allowed to work on it, right? So they built that kind of corporate control. So that threat, what was the, the, the corporation? Um, well, there's a few different ones, so it depends on, um, you know, which which one was the MRA, was the vehicle that we were working on, right? Which is even more logistically, right? I, I mean, this is the thing I want people. Well, to can understand, you name some of the corporate? This, can we know what some of those corporations are? Yeah, I mean, there's there's Halliburton. Top, I mean, some of the top ones are. Um, Raytheon, Boeing, right? But there's so many other smaller ones too. And what a lot of folks don't know is Amazon is is positioned to become one of the largest defense 
contractors as well. So um, they're not always just weapons manufacturers, right? It's it's food. It's all of these different things that we outsource to corporations that then they have a profit incentive in these kinds of occupations continuing. And I think that that's the thing that we need to address at the core. Um, and we need people who are in office who are willing to really fight for that and are genuinely loyal to what's good for people and planet and not what's good for Raytheon's bottom line. Uh, first of all, uh, BrittanyForThePeople.org. I don't ask for much from my listeners. Howie Klein has endorsed Brittany Ramos de Barros. She's running for Congress in Staten Island. Go to BrittanyForThePeople.org right now and give her money right now, please. I don't ask you for anything. We don't run commercials. We don't. I haven't done a pledge break in Lord knows how long. Go to BrittanyForThePeople.org and let's send her to Staten Island, send her to Washington, D.C. And you wrote a piece over Down With Tyranny that was just brilliant. And I called Howie and I said, "I please introduce me to Brittany. Explain something to me. Um, you come from a military family. Yes. Uh there's something I say over and over again, but I, because I'm of a certain age, I don't believe it 100%. I say we're fighting these wars for the military industrial complex. We're looking for enemies that don't exist to keep the military industrial complex humming. I say it and I repeat it over and over again. My father served and were all my grandparents served. And uh, uh, I say it over and over again. I say war is a lie. I quote David Swanson's book, but I don't believe it at 100 percent because I've been so convinced otherwise. When you were over there, did you end up? thinking like Smedley Butler? Did you feel you were a gangster for capitalism? Do you, when you describe not being able to fix your own vehicles and you were sitting duck sometimes because you would be violating the terms of service, an adhesion contract with the military industrial complex. Yeah. Should I mean it when I say the only reason we fight these wars is to fuel the military industrial complex? Well, it's also geopolitical positioning, right? We have for as long as I um, can remember and you know what I believe to be most of US history, our approach to at least more recent US history, our approach to um, you know, foreign policy, foreign engagement, how we engage with other nations, how we relate to other nations has been this belief that we have to dominate with military power at all costs. And there's no assessing of like dominate by how much, right? Because we already have military power that, you know, I mean, it's unmatched even by several of our, you know, closest competitors combined. And so, 
um, it has created this runaway effect where it's just like you are never powerfully positioned enough. You never have enough tanks. You never have enough bombs. You're never bombing enough places. You're never occupying enough places in case you have to bomb the other places, right? And so I think it's both profit and it's our geopolitical philosophy. Um, and I think if we literally want the planet to survive, we are going to have to shift the entire framework with which we think about security, right? We talk about these shadow enemies that we have to be able to protect ourselves from. Meanwhile, the DOD is burning 10.3 million gallons of oil per day and invading places in order to establish pipelines in ways that further destroy the ecosystem through bombing campaigns, right? So on and so forth. The Iraqi population is has the highest genetic damage rate of any population ever studied. And you can mark the change in that pre-US invasion to post-US invasion. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, that's, that's the, the genetic damage creates birth defects, increases in cancers, things like that. It is literally how we are so we're creating environments so toxic, it's changing the DNA of people, right? And so that's horrifying. That is a generations long lasting effect that we have had on the Iraqi people and it's happening all over the world. And so I think that, you know, the security that we need to concern ourselves with is the thing that if we don't change course is, a gar is guaranteed to kill us, kill all of us, right? Rather than some shadow enemy that, you know, some, uh, some general or, you know, some uh, corporate executive is cooking up to either, you know, continue justifying their existence or improving their bottom line. We, we have a question from somebody in our virtual studio audience. Tamara? Well, while we're waiting for Tamara to unmute herself. Uh, yeah. How should we talk to soldiers who are coming home? There, there is, we, if you're an abused kid, the only way to health is to be told the truth, that you were abused, the person who did that abused you, uh, that's why you have this PTSD that people, it used to be just Vietnam vets had PTSD, but now they say other victims have it as well. Don't you help soldiers better by saying to them, this was a big fat mistake, you were abused? It's a tough question to ask. We don't do well by we don't do well by our vets. So yeah. and I, I think it's partly because we lie to them. Yeah. And, and general I mean, in a lot of ways we don't even do well by active duty. I mean, look at the Vanessa Guillen case. Look at the fact that VA funding has been gutted repeatedly, systematically over the last decade. Um, and then people turn around and say, oh, well, it's because of the VA. It's the VA's fault and we need to privatize. And yet 
you know, that it completely erases and gaslights around, the, you know, the fact that they have participated in gutting it of resources. And so it's running on a skeleton staff that is doing a disservice to veterans who who were willing to sacrifice and serve, um, you know, and I mean, simple things around addressing military sexual trauma and assault. You know, we've we've just seen a repeated refusal to take real concrete action. And we're seeing movement now with a couple bills that were introduced in the last, you know, the last uh, couple cycles. And so I'm, I'm glad to see that. But um, I mean, this is the most infuriating thing. And it, it's hurtful in and of itself. Right. It's hurtful to know that. You know, you believed, you trusted these people with your willingness to sacrifice, with your willingness to do violence, to die. You were willing to put all of that on the line. And in turn, they want to have dog and pony show parades and pat you on the back and give you an empty thank you for your service while they continue to vote for policies that ultimately don't serve the community. And in this sense, veterans are a microcosm, but a very poignant micro microcosm of the way that both parties often say that they're fighting for everyday working class people and they say the right things sometimes, but then they turn around and they don't actually invest in the things that we need. And we have to change that. I'm worried about our veterans because uh, I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam vets and how they were treated. Uh, and I wonder if we have to talk to our veterans the way we talk to altar boys who were molested by priests. I, I, I wonder if there's an analog there because the military is sacred, keeping people safe. And it's the ultimate act of loyalty and patriotism. It is like being an altar boy for some, for most, for many. It, it requires faith, duty, and honor. And then to be sent off, they, they were abused. They were abused in Iraq. And they were abused in Afghanistan. And for our country not to say that creates more abuse for them, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's worse. They don't just not say that, right? They literally prosecute and torment those of us who decide to tell the truth. You know, I mean, there was a moment where I'm looking at my 18 year old, 19 year old troops freshly assigned to my command when I was a psychological operations officer. I had a detachment and they're saying things like I can't wait to deploy. They, they're true believers, right? The same way I was when I first came in. And I realized I am complicit in this lie that they're gonna go fight for freedom as long as I'm not telling the truth. And how can I look myself in the face as a commissioned officer that committed to protecting this country? And this country is not the government. This country is the values that are encoded that we are supposed to be upholding, right? And so as far as I'm concerned, it would have been a betrayal of the to the American people and to the values that we say that America is supposed to be about and are protected in the constitution if I had continued to keep my mouth shut as a commissioned officer officer who took an oath. So I started speaking out and I didn't even share. I didn't leak any secrets, right? I just started boosting 
basic facts about what our DOD was up to around the world that I thought people should be paying attention to and know, because I said, if I do that, at least I feel like I can look myself in the mirror and know that I'm I'm telling the truth. In uniform or out of the uniform, I'm going to keep telling the truth. And I was threatened with court-martial, put under investigation. I got hundreds of death threats, hate messages, you know, I mean, all of this craziness from people calling me a traitor, etc. And I want to know why telling the truth would ever be considered an act of betrayal when you have generals out here refusing, literally the Afghanistan papers exposed that you had a elected officials and senior military leaders knowingly lying to the American public about this war and about what was happening and to the troops. And so, you know, and and think about Daniel Hale, right? You were talking about drone strikes. My friend, fellow About Face, Veterans Against the War member, is sitting in jail right now because he leaked the proof that Obama was lying about the drone warfare program when he said that it was a better option because it was incredibly precise. And Daniel Hale leaked evidence because when you go through the normal whistleblower channels, you're usually those channels are going through the very same people who are approving those missions in the first place, right? And have a vested interest in covering them up. So he leaked them to the press so that the American public would know the truth because he felt that they had a right to know that nine out of 10 people killed by drone strikes in many of the cases, our civilians are unintended targets. And the Army knows that. The Air Force knows that. And, you know, we saw that just now. At least they finally, at least they were willing to admit it this time. There have been Afghan, Iraqi, Pakistani, et cetera, even, you know, people across North Africa begging for the U.S. government to at least admit that their family member was not a terrorist. Um, and the U.S. has, in many cases, just ignored those people. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, there is a full it's not just a refusal to, you know, to tell us we're sorry, you know, we're sorry or to admit that this harm was done. But there is an active assault happening against truth tellers that the American public needs to be paying attention to because, you know, this is the core fundamental check of accountability that the American public needs in order to hold the government accountable. And that's the way a democracy is supposed to work. And if we don't have access to the truth in these cases, then we have a real problem. Can you come back Thursday? What's your schedule like? <laughs> I wish, but honestly, I I have to figure out how to raise like well, I'm, I'm going to raise in the next ten days. How much so. you have to raise? I need to raise about fifty thousand dollars to be satisfied with my personal goal. Um, you know, right. I'm a, I'm ambitious. Um, we're, right. we're looking strong. New, New York City is a very expensive market. Uh, yes. Yeah, you're incredible. I mean, Thank uh, you. you're the. You know, anything I say is not going to come across properly, but uh, you're uh, uh, people should go to uh, uh, Down with Tyranny and read your piece. It was it blew me away when I read it. And how do people donate money to you? Um, yes, I think someone just uh, dropped the donate link in the chat, but if you're ever looking for it, there's a giant donate here button on our website, which again is Brittany for the people or Brittany for Congress.org. Either of those works. 
Um, and you can follow us on social media at Brit, B-R-I-T-T, number four Congress. All right, let, let's, um, and help us spread the word. Let, let's try to get you some money. If, if, if you, will you come back if we raise money for you? Yes. <laughs> After the end of this quarter. <laughs> when, when, sure. does the, when does the quarter end? Um, it's September 30th is our deadline. So I'm trying to raise that chunk by that time. So that's why, you know, I was like, no, I can't come back soon. Okay, well, grind. so well, here's the deal, time. because we, we barely scratched the surface. And I, I, I reached out to you because your writing w was so brilliant. How do, uh, let's see, how do you spend $50,000? Well, for me, it's investing in lit. Um, it's investing in tools and, you know, honestly, staff support and things like that so that we can really knock doors. So the difference, a lot of folks are like, oh, well, I'll wait till later. It's early. Um, we don't have time for that with the strategy that we're building in a district like this because you know, the reason that Nicole Maliotakis won is because there is an energized base here, Trumpist base he, he here. Beat, he beat, she beat Jared Golden, the centrist Democrat. Uh, Max Rose. That, Max yes. Rose, I'm sorry. Um, right. That's Yes, exactly. And he's and a veteran, too. In my piece. He's a veteran. Yes, he right. is. <laughs> right. Yes, he is. Jared Golden was um, another veteran who turned out to be like Rose. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. But, you know, we like the, the turnout in the 2018 Democratic primary when Max Rose was elected, which I knocked doors for and all of these things was like 11 percent rounding up. Um, and, you know, I, I write about this in more detail in my blog that was mentioned. But, you know, we have almost a two to one majority of registered Democrats to registered Republicans here. And we have another over 100,000 potential voters who aren't turning out. And many of them are young people of color, educated. They're folks that I think aren't turning out because they haven't had a candidate to really get excited about because we've had so many traditional centrist establishment Democrats be the ones to run. And so we're running an unapologetic campaign and we are organizing and we are building our own base. And I believe we can win that, that way. But that means we have to be knocking doors, making phone calls, registering voters now. And we've already been doing it for months. But that means that we have a prolonged amount of time where we're running a robust field operation. So we need the resources to be able to support the energy that folks are bringing to us, right? And to be able to meet them and convert them into voters and turn them into organizers who are organizing other voters. Um, Brittanyforthepeople.org. We need $50,000 by September 30th. I don't ask my listeners for much. BrittanyForThePeople.org. She's endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know. BrittanyForThePeople.org. Uh, sometimes people come on this show, and uh, today I'm a raw nerve for whatever reason, and you really got me. <laughs> like, I went, you, you, I went, wow. I mean, uh, Howie, are you there? Very much so. Yeah. Uh, we we have to raise fifty thousand dollars for. She got me today. You you got you, everybody you bring on the show is fantastic because you're Howie Klein. But for some reason, with, with just what's been going on in the world, Brittany, uh, I don't know. She's any. I I want to say she's. I, I you know any any compliment I give her won't sound right. But you I know, did. I asked 
quick question as yes. well before she leaves? Yes, please. And, and, and if you cover it, just tell me to shut up and we'll move on. But Brittany, one of the things that fascinated me about you is that you, you unlike many uh, vets who I've talked to, you were willing to uh, be more, uh, more insightful about your whole experience in the military and, and where that led you. Uh, in, in terms of your thinking about the military-industrial complex. Did, did you and David talk about that uh, subject yet? Yes, but go ahead. I want to I hear this. Please. Well, if you already spoke about it, uh, you spoke about it. Well, but but basically, I, I, I interrupted I, her as well. I was showing off for her, Howie, so I interrupted her a couple of times. I was trying to impress uh, her. So... <laughs> Would you like I'm to turning red? I'm turning red in the cheeks, y'all. <laughs> uh, Brittany, can you can you talk a little bit about how you how you, how your service uh, in Iraq? It was Iraq, right? No, it was the Afghanistan, Afghanistan. right? Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. How your service in Afghanistan uh, changed your thinking about the role of the military in in, in our country. Yeah, well, I did speak about that a little bit already. So what I think I would add is because I also want to shout out this documentary is that so many folks, one of the things that it, one of the reasons it took me so long is because I had this false narrative about patriotism and how we should relate to vets and the military about the Vietnam War. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, you've brought that up, um, David, but you know, there's this narrative. The only thing I really knew about the anti-war movement after Vietnam or during Vietnam was that some hippies had spat upon the troops. And that's why we say thank you for your service and show our gratitude now. Right. And in hindsight, I'm like, well, that there's a lot of blank spots in that. But I think that that's what's taught to a lot of people. Um, and so I didn't start to question it. I had never met an anti-war veteran. I had never heard of that being a thing, let alone a troop. And it was called it was when Colin Kaepernick took a knee and I watched the flag and veterans and the troops be weaponized against a man who was standing up for the very rights that we claim that someone like me signed up in the military to protect, right? Um, And I saw that and I was like, oh my God, we're never gonna get economic or racial justice or gender justice if we allow this kind of weaponization of the flag and militarism um, against our, our struggle to actually embody the values that we say we're about as a country. And so I, that's what led me to jump. I joined the Poor People's Campaign and I, because Reverend Barber was talking about Dr. King's interlocking evils of militarism, you know, racism and poverty and the connections between them. And I joined About Face, Veterans Against the War. And I, you know, I quickly became politicized around this issue. And um, I watched the documentary, Sir No Sir. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It it follows several of the people who were involved in the active duty resistance to the Vietnam War, um, as well as veterans. And what is not said enough is that somewhere between 500,000 and a million active duty troops and vets were part of that anti-war movement, actively marched, actually put their bodies on the line um, or took serious risks in order to be able to, you know, 
take moral action against something that they felt was immoral. Um, I'm proud to be a part of that lineage that inspired me to take the risks and actions that I took, which were minimal compared to so many um, and many other members of About Face and beyond. And so, you know, if you're hungry to learn more about that, um, you know, that's a documentary I really recommend. But it just became so clear to me through that experience that these issues are so connected. Um, And, you know, I think we have members in Congress who are speaking to, you know, from different points of intersection, but we haven't had uh, a post 9-11 vet come and be loud and unapologetic about saying that our current policy is hurting the troops, it's hurting vets, it's hurting the people who live here in the United States, and it's hurting people around the world. And we need not just to nibble around the edges, we need real transformation and reparations for the harm that's been done. Howie, you know what? Uh, she's, yeah, I, re- I read her piece for you and Down With Tyranny, and I reached out. Her writing is just, you know, amazing. She's, she's the first candidate I've ever had on this show who said, I need to raise $50,000 by September 30th. Nobody has ever been that upfront and honest <laughs> and, and spoke the truth and, and told and said, this is what I need. This is what it's about. Nobody has ever been that upfront and honest. Well, it's good that you're uh, you're uh, t- giving people her um, the, the page on Act Blue that they can go to to donate. So should they go to Brittany for the people dot org or go to where should they go? To donate. Either one. Either okay. one is good. It's, there's a donate. The donate links there are great. They take you directly to our Act Blue. If there's, um, you know, you can also go on our website and it links you to the same. It'll just take you to the same Act Blue form. So either one's great. I would love to see you in Washington, D.C. You're, yeah, you're uh, in a whole other league than what gets passed off for celebrity on the left. You're in a whole <laughs> other this is incredible. I'm going to let you go. Thank you. Hopefully, uh, somebody listening is going to send you fifty thousand dollars. That wouldn't that wouldn't be legal. Oh, it wouldn't be legal. It wouldn't be legal. No, the max an individual can give is twenty nine hundred. If you you know you, their their spouse can also give twenty nine hundred, right? So it's by the individual, um, and you can double max. Um, and give the full, you know, two max donations because that's for the primary. So if you want to give your general max now as well, that allows us to get our numbers up um, and we're not, we're legally, we just, we put that in a separate spot where we can't spend it until after the primary. Um, But I think we're going to win. So, you know, and I think regardless, we're building the kind of campaign that is worth the investment. When you run just based on what's currently possible, you don't get anywhere, right? We're just on this hamster wheel of dealing with these disappointments of candidates, right? Right. And this kind of campaign is the kind of campaign that is putting in the work to transform the landscape. And I think we're gonna win, but even if we lose, that's gonna set it up so that the next person has an even better shot. Um, And you know, I think that that's how we actually get to where we need to go. And that's the kind of work that we have to be investing in. So you need, what's the most you can give uh, in this quarter, 28? No, tw- no, you can give double 29. Okay, so we need $50,000 so that if we get 10, 12 people each, 
listening right now to give $2,900, that's kind of close to $50,000. I I have to believe. David, that's a lot to ask for, I, I think. I mean, you know your listeners better than I do, but but maybe maybe a smaller amount would, would make more sense to them. Like, you know what I was thinking? Maybe if you and I were the examples right now, uh, and you gave 500 and I gave 500, that would be 1,000, and then she would only need to do 4,900 instead nope. of, I mean, for, uh, 49,000 instead of 50,000. Okay, well said. Uh, I'm gonna let Brittany go and I'll make a pitch behind your back. Yeah. Thank you, Brittany. Okay. We, we, if, if, if I raise, if there's a, if you can draw a connection between money raised from the show, will you come back? Yes, I mean, I will. I'm happy to come back regardless. But well, yes, but, but, I, <laughs> but okay. yes, I someone already I gave and started. Someone already donated a hundred dollars. I noticed. Nice. That's awesome. And it adds up every amount, even if you can't do a larger amount like that, every amount really does add up quickly because we have to go for volume. And the last thing I'll say, because, you know, there's always going to be skeptics who are like, does she have any chance, though? That's totally normal. Um, you know, conventional wisdom would say I don't. I wrote a whole blog piece on why I believe that I do and that we do um, that you should check out. Um, so I'll spare you the details. But let me tell you one last thing that I think says a lot about the momentum we already have. We've raised over a quarter million dollars in grassroots contributions cycle to date so far. And we had, I believe, less than 10 total people who gave over a thousand dollars. That's how much just grassroots energy that we've been getting $25 here and $5 there and $250 there that has added up to over a quarter million dollars. And over the of, over the course of this, we're going to have to raise over two million. This was one of the most expensive expensive races in the country last cycle because um, it's new york city job, but it's, it's going to take all of us new york yeah. city is new york city you know a quarter of a million dollars gets you half a slice of pizza in new york city thank you <laughs> Brittany, for the people thank you so much okay howie thank you Brittany. yes howie klein joins us and uh britney for the people so there has to be some listeners out there like we're on so many different platforms. I have to assume there are some baby boomers listening who have $2,000 lying around. There has, some of my listeners have to have done well when the pandemic started. Some of my listeners have to have done well off the war. So, Give her $2,000. If you have money, uh, make the big donation. Make a big donation because this planet and this democracy, this <laughs> it's not going to be around much longer. This may be your last chance. And I hope that someone does, David. I really do. I, I, I It would be amazing if they do. Um, and you and and people can also go to downwithtyranny.com, which is my blog, downwithtyranny.com, and and there they'll see something that says about, and if you hit on about, uh, you you get an opportunity to donate. Um, and so you can you can you can donate directly to Brittany's um, campaign, and I'd love to see someone donate uh, two thousand dollars, and if someone does donate two thousand dollars based on that eloquent. Uh, 
uh, spiel that David just gave you, I will personally send that person uh, a wonderful, beautiful work of art that's relevant to um, to this uh, campaign. So, uh, and that will just be like a thank you, a thank you gift. And if two people donate or three people donate, I will send two or three of those as well. So David and I didn't plan this. Uh, this wasn't something that we thought we would do, but it's something that I was just inspired uh, to come up with. So what was the amount, David, that you're asking? Uh, $2,000, I think. Can we lower that to 1000 No. No, okay. Or $1,000. Right. Let's go to 2000 So you, you're going to have to, so the way I'm going to know that you donated it is go to downwithtyranny.com, hit the little thing on the top that says about, and then you'll have an opportunity to donate. Donate two grand, and you get uh, David's thanks and my present. And and, we'll, and next week we'll figure out some way uh, I can, you know. But yes, you'll donate a piece of art. How did you find this person? Here's the thing: I knew I was having you on the show. I, I go to Down with Tyranny about three times a week to check in, and I'm reading what she wrote, and it, it was a perfect a- analysis of what's going on in Staten Island, why the tried and true Democrats always fail in Staten Island and what what is needed. And the writing was so, how brilliant, you see, I was afraid to compliment her because it it would be like, I felt I was like talking to Obama. Like, you know, when I talk to, to candidates, we, we, we speak on the phone for hours sometimes, or, you know, not maybe not hours in one shot, but an hour one day, an hour another day, an hour another day. And, and I get to know them and I get to know what would work best. And, and one of the things I always tell the candidates is that our readers, the readers are down with tyranny. They, they want to hear the authentic voice of the candidate. They don't want to hear a press release. They don't want to hear a website. They want to hear, they want to feel that they know what the candidate is all about. And it's got to be an authentic voice. Otherwise, no one's going to be interested. And, and she definitely took that to heart. We also talked about several issues uh, while we were trying to figure out well, what would be best for her to write about. And, and then we decided not to go with the thing that so many candidates do all the time. So we didn't talk about the Green New Deal, which she supports. We didn't talk about Medicare for All, which she, she supports. But we talked about something unique to Staten Island that I thought would interest people. And I know it interested at least you. Yeah. And that was, you know, it, by the way, it's not just Staten Island. About over a third of the district is in in South Brooklyn, including where I, where I grew up, uh, which makes me always very, very interested in, in what goes on in that district. The other thing that I've been watching very closely is the the guy who, there was a blue dog named Max um, Rose. I don't know if you discussed that at all. Yeah, I, I, confused I, him, I confused him with our friend Jared Golden. But so, very that's similar. Yes. Yeah. And Max uh, Rose is the blue dog and he, he hasn't declared he's going to run yet, but he's probably going to run. I'm, he's, I mean, he's raising money, so he's going to run. He's calling people and telling them, uh, you know, that he's going to run. So he probably will. Uh, and, you know, I thought, oh, my God, this, this cycle, someone's just got to break this cycle uh, of, you know, you get a conservative Democrat who gets replaced by a conservative Republican. Eventually, the conservative Republican gets caught with a second family or stealing money or murdering people, and they they retire and or get or get 
go to jail, and then you get another conservative Democrat. And that's the cycle that needs to be broken. And Brittany thinks she's got the way, and I think she's got the way, to break that cycle, which is, which is different. No one has ever tried it before. A Democrat who really speaks to working people and, 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 and on their issues and doesn't try to be a Republican-like candidate. She's not trying to win over conservative voters. I mean, some of them may vote for her. That's not her, her purpose. Her purpose is to turn out more working class voters and to enthuse Democrats and get them to come out and vote for her. That's that's what she's trying to do. The person who she's running against, Nicole um, Maliotokas, is just a garden variety Republican, just absolutely awful, and way to the right of this district. I mean, this is not some crazy right-wing district. This is uh, a district that Obama won, as, as a matter of fact, in 2008. And uh, and, and I, I am certain that uh, there is there is a real chance for Brittany to win this district as well. In her piece for Down with Tyranny, she said Bernie won the primary there as well. Well, well, he won he won parts of the district. Remember, he was he was running against uh, Hillary, who was very well known. She right. had been the senator from New York, but Bernie. Oh, oh, oh was she talking about twenty twenty? In any case, Bernie won big swaths of, in both Brooklyn and in Staten Island, and uh, you know people thought, well, how is that possible? Uh, but of course that's possible because they're not conventional status quo candidates. And when I say they, I mean both Brittany and Bernie. Neither of them is a conventional status quo candidate. And that's what people don't want. And they get stuck between a status quo conservative Democrat and a status quo conservative Republican. And they have no other choice. Now they're going to have a choice. Right. Right. Brittany for the people dot org. I want to I'm getting some pushback from the studio audience. I said it was like talking to Obama. You know what I meant by that, right? They just said he was smart, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you if you were to meet Barack Obama without knowing anything about him, he you would be blown away by him and you would catch yourself. I mean, you would catch yourself before saying, you know, you're pretty smart because he'd say, yeah, you think, you know, (laughs) I felt that way with Brittany. I wanted to give her a compliment, but I thought, uh, I don't think she needs a compliment from me. She's the, uh, very articulate. And you know, she, um, she worked her way up, uh, in the ranks and became a captain, which is, which is something, especially for, uh, uh, you know, she was on, in combat duty. She was on the front lines in Afghanistan. And she and in the end, before she left uh, the army, she she was a captain, which is, is not easy for, for a, a woman. No, not at all. All right. Uh, this one, you know, every candidate you introduce, and I don't know, I think because of, Afghanistan, the, uh, and I think most Americans, whether they know it or not, are suffering, not like the soldiers are, not like the people of Afghanistan are, but this is a watershed moment in American history when we finally have to confront the truth about our Pentagon and our role in the world. I think a lot of Americans have finally realized what these forever wars are about. And 
It's very upsetting. And it's especially you really feel that way, David. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you, you think that more people are realizing that now than realized it, uh, you know, so towards the end of the Vietnam War when not enough people realized it? Uh, I think after the Vietnam War, people realized it. And then Reagan came along. So and then they unrealized it. Yeah. But and Vietnam was the first. Well, the lead up to World War One, we had Eugene Debs. But in modern history, Vietnam was the first time the American people challenged the war machine. Uh, but there were no lessons learned from it. The second time around this 20 year war. They they broke us. This war broke the country in every way, financially, spiritually, morally. This country is is broken from this 20 year war. And uh, most people don't they internalize this trauma and don't recognize it. But I think it's underneath the surface that something they believed in was a lie and whether or not they know that they know that they're why they're feeling this way, but they're feeling it. They may not know why they're feeling it, but this country is feeling it. The thing, the, the, the pullout from Afghanistan, it's a trauma. Yeah. Well, usually when a country occupies another country and then they get defeated and they have to leave, it's always a trauma. I happen to think that um, Biden handled this way better than it's been handled in the past. Americans don't understand that because they don't know history. Look and see the way uh, the British left Afghanistan. Um, or the way we left the- Saigon, dumping all those helicopters into the ocean. Yeah, that's right. And that, that, was, that was way more horrible. But you know what? When the British left Afghanistan, after they were defeated, an entire army was massacred. The Afs left one person alive to go back into India to tell what what had happened. But they they slaughtered the entire army. So that didn't happen here. We we lost a few people, and that's horrible, but we didn't lose an army. Right. When people talk about the way Trump would have done it, come on, let's be real. Trump has a record. That's what he would have done. We would have lost the whole army. Right. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Go there right now and donate to Brittany or go to BrittanyForThePeople.org. You got me this week. (laughs) This one, usually uh, I see the candidates. They're all great. But this this one, uh, you know. Well, you you really like a lot of these candidates very much. I mean, I've heard you raving about some of the candidates and i know that you've invited them back and uh you know you treat them really well and i'm glad that you 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 think so highly of Brittany. i remember it was just a week or two ago and there was another candidate that you seemed extremely enthusiastic about. yes 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 all right i love you thank you so much i'll see you next week yep i can't wait to see you howie klein thank you so much howie klein and why can't i what but hang on, the, 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 the applause is deafening. Why can't I be on the Zoom thing, too? Oh, and another question, another thing I have to ask you. What, what happened with um, 
Dorothy Wright. I know you had her on the show. Did did you not like her or something? She was fine. <laughs> she was fine. I, she got the feeling that you you were uh, you know sort of uh, mocking her and and treating her badly. We'll talk tomorrow. Okay. I I I I did not treat her badly. But we'll talk tomorrow. I, you treat everybody the same. I treat everybody the same. Yeah. We're, we're live, by the way. We are? Yes. <laughs> this talk is... to you later. Thank you, Allie. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> we're, this is, thank you, Allie. This is, take you to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> this is, this is, I do the show. David Cobb joins us. He ran for president in 2004 on the Green Party ticket. He's a lawyer, but one of the good ones. There are very few good lawyers, but he's one of them. He's an environmental activist, and he's working with the people, the Native Americans, the first people of Humboldt County. Is, is Humboldt County? That's correct. Yeah, and I want to ask That's you correct. about. I want to ask you about the fires and the recall, and then what. Your, what you want to talk about. Last call for BrittanyForThePeople.org. Please give a dollar or a thousand dollars, but give her money. That was, uh, we just met an amazing candidate. Just uh, amazing. How are you, sir? You know, I'm good. And uh, boy, there's so much because I came onto the conversation. I was loving the very tail end because I, like, what I want to talk about is empire and how like getting out of an, an, a failure as an empire is, of course, traumatic. Well, hang on. And Professor Ann Lee wants to know how your lecture went yes, last week. Oh, thank you, Professor. So, uh, you know what? I got to tell you, to paraphrase or not, to quote the who, the kids are all right. I mean, when when, uh, when I laid it out, uh, not only was it a receptive audience for, you know, I, uh, um, to, 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 uh, I laid out, so look, y'all, this is what capitalism is. I'm just gonna give you the objective definition. Uh, this is the objective definition of a solidarity economy. And these are the concrete policies that can be done uh, as non-reformist reforms because like uh, you know whether you think capitalism can be reformed or we need a whole other system here are the things like public banking and participatory budgeting and worker owned cooperatives like there was not like not a single but what i'll say uh uh professor and uh to david feldman i will tell you that there was okay there were some hard clarifying questions about the definition of capitalism, but once there was agreement on what it was, I just made the, the, the case. I said, I deduce that unlimited growth on a finite planet is the ideology of cancer. Now, I appreciate it that some folks think that that, that may not be true, but I will just, uh, that's my position. Mm -hmm. And that actually, I got very little pushback on that. Uh, what I got was, well, wait a minute. Well, then what's, what is, how do we meet human needs, right? Like, and maybe it's because Humboldt State University business students are not the same as, you know, University of Chicago business students, right? Is there a degree <laughs> rolling paper? <laughs> I 
<laughs> Good. Well done. Well played. Uh, uh, but the, the, but the point is that it was a, the, the, the lecture went really well as we laid it out. And then the, the kind of the the questions were not like uh, efforts to undermine me, but they were really intellectually inquisitive questions about, well, wait a minute, what's the, like public banking? You say democratizing finance concretely. What does that mean? Where do the profits go? What's the incentive to be able to do it? I mean. These were people who were really thinking in a in a systems approach. I was very impressed by those students uh, and promised the professor uh, that I would come back uh, uh, again. So it, it went really well. And thank you, Professor Ann Lee, for, yes. for asking that question. The kids are all right. And then they become adults. I know, right? And they forget um, that they forget. They we, forget. we do forget. We do forget. And, and we, we need to remind ourselves. And. So this empire. Is the, Talk to me about empire. So so yeah, thank you because oh yes. What? So 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 uh, I thought I heard something. So look about empire. What I heard Howie saying really resonated for me, right? And what I heard you saying resonated. It is trauma, and the difference is if um, if all we do is say okay, how do we get out of this failure? in a way that is as, as least painful as possible or are okay. But really, let's be clear, Afghanistan was a failure of empire, right? And so rather than do empire better, let's just not do fucking empire, okay? Like what if we actually took a proper role for the United States of America in actually the, the, the global community and said, let's actually revamp U.S. foreign policy so it actually reflects the values of liberty, justice, equality, and democracy. You know, oh, and by the way, why don't we do that here in the United States as well, right? right? Like, why don't we actually take that seriously? So what I'm getting at, uh, David, is that I think that there is a real opportunity to come to terms with... Uh, what the United States foreign policy has been, and it is empire. But here's something important. The modern empire is not the traditional empire. It's not the, the empire of going out, taking over other land and managing it. In late stage capitalism, imperialism looks like just extracting the resources and putting in the uh, uh, putting in a mechanism by which you can you can get the local people to exploit themselves to extract their resources to send it back to to uh, to the capital of empire. The second can, a part to that, David. So it's actually not even an American empire. It's a corporate empire because that empire operates to benefit the corporate elite, right? And I will submit this. I have more in common than the working class person in Congo or Bangladesh or Costa Rica or anywhere in the country, even though I share language uh, and culture, uh, uh, you know, a, a historic cultural norms with the ruling elite of this country. Think about it as like the nations now are these super steep pyramids and at the top, the ruling elite even across different languages and across different histories, they've got more in common with each other than working class people do at the base. That's why 
having a genuine globalist worldview is actually so important because empire, conquest, power over, domination, that's what's destroying the planet. Yeah. We got to stop that. The planet. You live in Northern California. The sequoias are being threatened. What's happening with the fires? So uh, they are getting contained. Uh, uh, it is so. So again, we're we're in a crisis. But remember that this ecological crisis is not coming. It's here and getting worse. This is like the new reality or the new normal. So we did get some rain all across um, uh, the the bioregion. Uh, so it's not as scary. It's they're getting contained, but at the end of the day, like we're going to have to actually uh, um, look. The window is closing, but the good news is that, uh, and I'll bring in the traditional ecological knowledge or TEK, uh, because the the folks at the Wiat tribe and the Karup and the Yurok, who are frankly educating me and helping me to decolonize my own thinking and my own perspective uh, said, look, David, like, like the way uh, Europeans and the way you white folks talk about fire suppression is actually part of the problem. We have always had a relationship with fire and it's not even management, right? We don't even talk about managing the forest because we are in relation with the forest, the animals within the forest, and we are literally in a relationship with fire. In and uh, 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 in uh, in the, the Yurok tradition, they literally have a saying that basically translates: "Fire is the most is the sharpest or most most powerful tool in the toolbox." Fire to them is just a tool that they're in relationship with, and the problem has been that because you know white. Uh, colonized mentality looks at a forest and immediately thinks board feet. And the only thing that has value to it is whenever you cut it down and turn it into a commodity that's bought and paid for to profit, as opposed to looking at a, a vibrant ecosystem that we ourselves are part of, right? It's something to be able uh, to, to be part of and in relation with. So this is why like, I have a friend who, uh, who is indigenous or, or who works with indigenous people as well, like uh, uh, who says, follow those who know the way, right? Like there is a way out of the madness. There is a way out of the insanity, but it's not continuing to do what we've been doing only better or more effectively. It's actually to remember that we all descend from indigenous peoples. You know, I know, David, because I've done the, the research and my mama uh, was very proud of the fact that we descend from Scott and Irish. Right. Uh, and uh, so I know that there was a time when my ancestors were in right relationship with each other, with the bioregion and the land. And then the English Empire came and raped and pillaged and plundered and drove my my ancestors off of the land. Uh, and then they came to this continent and raped and pillaged and plundered and drove people off the land. The thing is this, there is so much trauma. Uh, my ancestors both experienced trauma and caused trauma. Mm -hmm. I, and so what we have to do is learn to 
heal ourselves, heal the trauma, and really and truly, I am talking to you from unceded Wiyot ancestral territory, where the Wiyot have stewarded this land since time immemorial. I am an uninvited guest here, but my mama and my mama and papa taught me if you're going to be a guest somewhere, be an appropriate guest, be a good guest. So I can't go back to Scotland and Ireland. There's not like, I can't just leave humble. This is my home, but I, I need to learn how to be an appropriate guest. And I need to learn from the Wiat people about how to be in right relationship with them and the bay and the forests uh, and, and, uh, and the river and waterways. And that's not to romanticize it. It is to say there is a worldview that my ancestors once knew too, and I need to decolonize my own mind and then find the right way to do my work on this planet to be a healing force. When you look at somebody like Senator Joe Manchin, there was a piece in the New York Times yesterday. He's writing the climate script for Bernie's $3.5 trillion bill. Joe Manchin, I'm sorry. What? He's chairman of the Energy Committee. So he's been assigned because of his status. And he's saying the Green New Deal, he says, I am willing to admit that climate change is man-made, but it's too much too soon. It's happening too quickly. He thinks Bernie's bill is happening too quickly. He hasn't looked outside, apparently. There's something else that's happening quicker. I mean, like, this is the thing. Like, with all due respect, to Senator, and, and it's very little that's due, by the way, <laughs> but with whatever respect is due to that position, science doesn't care about the politics, right? Like, it, it, the, the reality is that the world is literally being destroyed faster than she can replenish herself. And, uh, like, like, what is the epic, what is the, like, really, what is the, the final analysis going to be? Like, yeah, we destroyed the planet, but boy, we had about 50 or 75 years where we really returned the highest maximum yield for our, our shareholders, right? The, the most profit we could probably get. This, this is insanity. It is insanity. And, it's insane. And the fact that Senator Manchin is supposed to, like, like this is really depressing because I thought that, uh, like the three point five trillion was a was an opportunity to actually shift, uh, but under not with Joe Manchin if he's actually going to be the the spokesperson for for the energy part. That's disappointing. It's disappointing because we really don't have much time. Correct. And as you're reading about Joe Manchin, who earns more than half a million dollars in dividends from some coal company he owns. It's murderous. There's no other word for it other than murderous, that he is murdering the planet for his coal dividends. Correct. I mean, look, that's how I read it, too. And that's like, look, I want to be clear. It's not that I think that Joe Manchin is a bad human being. I do. I'm saying that the policies and the worldview that he has is destructive, right? So, so like, I have a scathing critique of that. 
But I don't want to demonize him as an individual. What I want to say is we are making a mistake if we allow him uh, to to be the spokesperson for what it is that we need to be doing. Like it is like it, it is just wrong. And as long as. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there. No, OK. Yeah. His phone number is three oh four. His phone number is three oh four. Three six eight zero five six seven. Call Senator Joe Manchin's office. You'll leave a message. The number is three zero four three six eight zero five six seven. And politely ask him to support Bernie's three point five trillion dollar reconciliation bill. Don't be an a hole. If if you're an a hole, if you make it about yourself, you're hurting the rest of us. You leave a nasty message, it's just going to make them want to vote against Bernie. You leave a... Yeah, re- I mean, you know, but that's right. Like, but, but you know, uh, as you know, David Feldman, uh, I come from Texas, right? And yes. uh, the great Texas politician Sam Rayburn uh, once famously said, you know, as an elected official, when I feel the heat... I always see the light. (laughs) Uh, And I always love that phrase, right? Because it really is about accountability. Now, yelling at somebody is not the same thing as an accountability. Like, I don't know about you, but I've never been persuaded by somebody just shouting at me. No. Right? Just a habit. And, you know, and I know, by the way, anytime I find myself just shouting at somebody, I'm not communicating anymore. I'm venting. And, you know, uh, and that's not my best self. And, Guess what? I'm a human. I'm not always my best self. Nobody is. But this is very serious matter. I agree with uh, uh, David Feldman. Call 304-368-0567 and respectfully request Senator Manchin support Bernie Sanders' version of the reconciliation bill. It's just that simple. Uh, He's a member of the United States Senate. He has a very important uh, uh, vote to take. And if you're in West Virginia, all the better, right? Uh, But if you're not, he's still a U.S. senator, and he needs to know that there is a growing movement uh, that is making a request. This is how representative democracy is supposed to work. Don't call and yell at him. It doesn't help. It actually hurts. Uh, But do add your voice to the chorus. That would be my request. Right, right. I can't imagine he's got to be in his 70s. Don't you want to go down in history? Do you really want to go down in history as the senator who destroyed the planet, who killed us all? You know, I just this is the thing that I just can't wrap my head around. Like, is somebody like Manchin so bought in to the to the sort of corporate capitalist worldview that he really thinks that he's doing the right thing. I mean, like that, like because to me that the objective science is so obvious. It is so clear. It is so frightening uh, that I just can't. I can't square it, David. Yeah. I can't square. It. We don't know rich people. That's the problem in America. There are two Americas. John Edwards talked about this. People who have, like he does, a $750,000 yacht named Almost Heaven, we can't fathom what they're thinking. 
there, you know, in France, you can't build a luxury apartment in Paris without set-asides for low-income housing in that building. In Paris, they force the wealthiest 1% to have poor people as neighbors. Oh, how about this? Did you know that in Sweden, uh, part of the reason they have such stellar public education because they don't allow private uh, education. They say, like, the the rich folks send their kids to the same schools as everybody else. I mean, like, there is something to this idea of, you know, uh, communalism, uh, uh, a collective experience. Uh, I think that if we really understand that we're all in it together, we have a different view. That, by the way, is what class consciousness actually means. And, you know, the... The reality is that um, I think you're right. Somebody like uh, Senator Manette, like anybody who is in that class, they 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 process information. Their positionality in the world is different than than ours and the overwhelming majority of us. See, the problem is that they are in positions of power where they're going to kill us all. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. Like that, that's the problem. Like if it was just that they were like greedy, selfish, like little children and they were like, I honestly, on my best days, I feel sorry for them because they're not actually connected to other humans and to the to creation itself. And they're, and they're ignorant. And, they're, did and you, they're ignorant. I, I was watching the Elizabeth Holmes, I think that's your name, the Theranos woman, mm-hmm. the documentary on HBO. She... If you haven't seen it, the trial is going on right now, you know, fraud. She convinced all of Silicon Valley that she could make this thing called Edison, where from a drop of blood, she could test 200 signs of illness. She could tell you 200, you know, tests for heart disease from just a drop of blood. She raised countless billions. The the takeaway from the documentary is when you get to a certain level of privilege, it makes you stupid. George Shultz, remember George Shultz, Secretary of State under uh, Nixon and uh, Rand Bechtel. He signed on to the board of directors. The war criminal Henry Kissinger, who unfortunately is still alive, he vouched for this. Uh, Mad Dog Mattis our Pentagon before he went back to run the Pentagon under Trump. He was on the board of directors and they would make speeches praising the technology behind Edison. And there was no technology. They were taken by her. We we like to think that somebody like Joe Manchin is smart because he's wealthy and he's a senator and he wins. He's not smart. He's not. And he's and his stupidity is getting us killed. Well, you know, I can't help but to see that Dr. Fraud has joined us. Oh, let's bring let's bring somebody who is uh, uh, maybe capable of helping us understand this, especially since I've run into her time in the past. Uh, Let's get a three way conversation going on. Uh, What what about it, Dr. Fraud? Is is Feldman right? I think his cupidity has got, will get us killed. He's in bed with the fossil fuel companies and that's all he can see, more for him. 
He's like his daughter with the EpiPen, raising the price so that people can't afford it and she can make more money. He's inured to the suffering around him because he's making money and he feels he's winning in the American game because he's making money. And yes, he's stupid because that's a monovision, stupid, but he's shrewd in what he's doing and he's making money. And that's what counts for him. And that's what capitalism does. It makes the idea of making more for yourself the goal in life. And those people who have more, then they get ambassadorships, they get appointed to positions of authority with our, in our government just because they're rich, rather than being disqualified on that basis because they're profiteers. It's a whole capitalist mindset. That has this, to change. This, this I, I thank you very much because I think that I, that absolutely makes sense to me. This notion of accumulation, and remember, profit maximization is one of the key characteristics of capitalism. Yes. I just want to point out if if these like wealthy, powerful people who are hoarding wealth, power, and decision making, right? Like they're hoarding it. Mm-hmm. If they were hoarding any other thing other than than money we would recognize it as a mental illness and we would get them help, right? Like there's like literally like, and this is this is my point from earlier. Like, so on my best days, I can feel sorry for them. And if we had a just and compassionate healthcare system, single payer, right? Uh, we would get them actually help. But the problem is that they're not just hurting themselves, they are literally destroying the planet. That's the reason why I believe that we're going to have to create a new economic system so we stop incentivizing this destruction. We stop incentivizing this bad behavior. That's right. You know, Marx said when he was in the company of um, people who were capitalists, he said, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and your prophets. Well said. Because the ethic is accumulate. And those who have accumulated a lot are considered clever. Look at Trump. He's obviously an idiot. However, he's rich. And however you got rich, it doesn't matter. Because in a capitalist system, those who have accumulated the most are considered worthy of ruling the nation. And no one... We don't have a socialist or communist voice out there saying, no, they're predators. They should be disqualified. They're living off the labor of other people. And that's dishonest. And they should be disqualified from the get-go. But then the rich and famous are eulogized everywhere in this capitalist culture, except on David Feldman show. Hey, listen, so I I appreciate that you made a quote. So I'm going to give another quote and I'll ask both uh, David Feldman and Dr. Freud to guess who. And I won't do it with the precision that Dr. Freud did, but I will tell you it is a pretty close paraphrase. And it goes like this. Never does the merchant class gather together, even for mirth and merriment. But the topic of conversation becomes a conspiracy against the working classes. End quote. Wow. Well, somebody in the chat, Professor John, got it right away. It's Adam Smith, y'all. Like, I think it's really important that, that this idea of the, quote, free market is actually a myth. 
Markets are created by policy. Government policy actually has to create this. So like the, the, the reality is that just as it's constructed, it can be deconstructed, it constructed in different ways. Okay. There are right now very clear policies that can be done even within the dictates of capitalism to undermine it. That's why, Dr. Broad, I know that you're speaking to the uh, to the sovereign money folks. Um, have you already done that or that's coming up? I did that already. So I want to hear how that went because public banking is one of those things that I've been advocating uh, as, like, is it, is it, the, the, is it the complete uh, solution to the finance problem? No. No. But it is... It is a it is a step in the right direction. It is. Look what they did in Iceland when the last crash, where they jailed the banksters who were really um, flagrant, where they nationalized the other banks, and where they it's a democracy. So they voted if they wanted austerity or not. They said no, and so they did without some of the imported goods, and people retained their jobs, and. It was a democracy. They decided. It's, you know, and they put the banksters in jail and nationalized the other banks. And turned it over to women. Yes, in part, but not because they were women, but because they were, you know, qualified, honest leaders. It's, you know, there is no one thing that's ever the solution. But what there is is the change of the culture, the change of the economy, the change of the financial and emotional incentives, the change of the culture. It's all there and it all shapes each other. And in capitalism, that's what we're stuck with. And we have to start to unstick it. I think with a, a really independent media, there's there's a great book called Stuck Nation by, um, you know, I'll show it up to you. Stuck by Nation. By whom? Robert Henley, who I hope to bring on your show. But what's the last name? H-E-N-N-E-L-L-Y. He has reported for CBS, for WN by NBC. And, um, oh, we WN. had him. Henry interviewed him. Henry interviewed him. Bring him on. He's yeah, been- he's terrific. Yeah. <clears throat> but he points out that the people who do the hardest work are the least valued in our society. While the people do the least work are the most valued. So for example, the the emergency medical services, they get paid less than firefighters, they get paid less than everybody, and they're the ones on the front line. And that's so down the line. And that if we are if we're gonna, you know, they let it out, essential work is essential to life. Well, the stock market is not essential to life. 80% of the stocks are owned by 10 or 5% of the population. And and it's not essential. And now we're in late stage finance capitalism. It's worth pointing out, right? Like it's not even tethered to the real world anymore, right? Like finance capitalism run them up. Do you know now, I'm sure Dr. Fraud knows, but I'll just let listeners uh, know that uh, the the speculative economy is now quote more valuable than the actual productive economy like like this is insanity like this like we are in we are in end game here uh and that's why like i like look 
part of the reason that I prioritize coming onto this program, David, like, look, you're, a, you're, you're, you're funny, you're witty, I enjoy the conversation. But I actually come onto this conversation because this is one of the few places where there is a pretty uh, a, you know, broad audience to actually engage people like candidly about actually what's happening and to try to try to sharpen like well so what should we do right like and obviously we don't always agree that's okay we don't have to always agree but if there's not a place for genuine discourse and to actually think well what is the plan then like like uh, 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 yeah so all i'm saying is i agree with dr fraud i'm grateful for the opportunity to imagine this and i'm curious Dr. Fraud, what you thought about the folks at uh, 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 the the sovereign money, uh, the Alliance for Just Money? Like, what was their what was their analysis? Their analysis is that banking is the central villain, and if you change that, everything will change. I don't believe that. I believe everything in a culture shapes everything else, and there is no one change because you can enter into this discourse of change anywhere. Richard Pryor entered into that discourse through sex and was very radical. You could also enter through gender or through the, the economy, but everything shapes everything else. And so you can't just decide to change the bank and everything will change. The reason it worked out in Iceland is it's a socialist society and it's a democracy. So people got to vote whether they wanted austerity or not and whether they thought those banksters should be put in jail and they were. But it's everything. It's the culture. It's the economy. It's the socialist parties there. It's the communist party. It's the whole ball of wax. And so you can't say that there's any one gimmick. You pull that thread, the whole thing falls apart. That may be true with a sweater. You unravel it, the whole thing comes apart. But not with human society. It's too complicated. I agree. And I think I'm so glad that you brought up Iceland because it's also worth pointing out there a little less than 400,000 people. So it's a, it's a question of scale. How many? I think it's a little less than 400,000 is the entire population of Iceland. Um, you know, and, and again, why is Vermont such a unique place? Population of about 700,000 in the state, right? Like I, there's something that tells me that, 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 that somewhere about a million may be the end at which you can actually have a functioning, quote, state. And I don't mean no, just... You know, I don't think so. Look at um, New Zealand with Jacinda Ardern. They have nine million people. That's as much as New York City. Ah, thank you. I stand corrected. This is, this, like, I absolutely, structures and systems. This is what I mean. Like, you know, so I was right. Dr. Fraud was wrong. Like, my instinct around scale, I think there's something to it. But I was being too, uh, I was being too bold about it. That's I right. That's the same with Portugal, which has millions and millions of people. You know, you have to have mechanisms in place for people to choose, for people to decide, for the economy to be responsive, for the culture to be responsive. You know, Ardern could say to her people, "Look, we're all in this together." When they had something like nine deaths, we have to close everything down. If you're coming back to New Zealand, you have to quarantine for 14 days because we're in it together and we'll solve it together. And they did. But that's because they, she's the Socialist Labor Party, so it's economically egalitarian. 
for the indigenous people there. She now teaches Maori in the schools and has that for feminists. She's got that whole different scale where she looked at all the skills that poorly paid people have in doing nursing home care and child care and after school care and all those very badly paid caring professions. She compared them to other professions that were well paid and all those people got a 30.5% increase. Things like social work and child care. And she's the social the Socialist Labor Party in terms of gender. She changed their lives. She is the president of New Zealand. Her um, guy takes care of their baby. They're not married and anyone asks her about it. She says, that's not your business. And they have a child together and he's the one who stays home and takes care of the child when the child is not in childcare. Okay. So there's gender, there's the economy, there's the culture, there's the evaluation of labor differently, and they're all working together. And it's um, a society of about 9 million people. So, and Portugal's even bigger. So it, it, it's possible. And of course it's decentralized. Central, you don't have to have central power because you have a large country. So this is the king, like, it really is about systems and what is incentivized and that there should things, look, there should be some things that are just not allowed. I'll, I would argue that like the profit motive has no place in healthcare. The profit Absolutely. motive has no place in, like, like there are some things that are just too darn important for right. social well-being uh, to allow them right. to be privatized. That's like, right. All the basics like housing, shelter, food, water, transportation, all those things, education, healthcare, those all should be socialized. Things like luxury cheese, okay, have that in the profit sector, fine. But the basics have to be guaranteed. And in this society, we have the most, we have the money to do it, it's just skewed and you know, AOC wore that dress, tax the rich. She got a lot of crap for it because it cost 12 grand, although she got millions of dollars worth of publicity for that. But we're getting to the point where we're gonna need money as a society and we know who has it, so let's go. I'm with you and uh, like uh, one of the things that I've learned is I'm anti-capitalism, I'm not anti-capital. We need capital to do the things that we do. And uh, I am so enthralled by this, the the clarity, uh, Dr. Fraud, of how you sort of lay this out. I gotta admit y'all, like I'm right now, I'm like, I'm having a real political intellectual crush on you. Like your, the clarity (laughs) with which you're able to just lay this out. uh, Like, uh, you know, there's a reason- By the way, take a number. (laughs) <laughs> yeah right I, I so i've heard so i've heard uh now i'm, I'm making myself a blush um but but look the, the 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 thing is that what what inspires me is that new zealand exists as a working model 
Iceland exists as a working model. That's the part of the reason why the ruling elite are so scared and try to make socialism a bugaboo, because yeah. there are working models where people's lives are better, demonstrably better under socialism. And I think that, frankly, it's time to actually embrace it and to say, you know what? Obama was never a socialist. I'm a socialist. Let right. me tell you what socialism would actually bring to us and, and have some clarity around there's a difference between being a liberal, being a progressive, and being a radical. Like, and let's, let's have some clarity around the language and win people over to our side. Exactly. And show people there is an alternative. People are desperate for an alternative. The place is falling apart. You know, we lost in Afghanistan. We're there running the hell out. And they say, we should have negotiated. No, we have to run for our lives, stupid. We lost. They don't say that. They say, well, we should have negotiated a different exit. You had to run. You lost, stupid. Okay, that's <laughs> over. And it's also over that the United States is the king of the world. Biden asked Deng Xiaoping, for a meeting and Deng Xiaoping said, oh, thank you. If you don't want to discuss China bashing, we're not going to discuss she, China she. without your program it was of she, China right? bashing. Xi Jinping. She, yeah. He turned him down. That didn't, you know, that wasn't in the American imagination before. This country is going down and we need an alternative. And we have one, that's the good news. That is the good news. And I think that that's part of the reason why for me, like, I, like I'm i happy to have these conversations and I do because they sharpen my thinking and, you know, uh, and uh, like that that is critically important, like a theoretical basis. But I study theory and history not to be a good movement trivial pursuit player. No. I study it so that I can apply it to the best of my ability to my local material conditions. And then I'm willing to and constantly do ask, is it working? It's like, that's the, that's the praxis. That's the beauty of praxis is that like, really you have a theory, you, you, you make plans and strategy based on your theory, you put it into practice and then you're constantly evaluating right. and making adjustments as we go. That's right. And you're doing it. You're doing it in Humboldt County. And it's very exciting and an inspiration to everyone in the United States who knows enough to know about it. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel good. Well, that's true. That's true. It can work. It does work. You're doing it. It does work. And, you know, I, that's the other thing. Like, lots of folks are doing it, and it's beginning to bubble up. You know, Cooperation Jackson, in the heart of the, the neo-Confederacy, something amazing is happening. Jackson, right? Mississippi, yeah. Jackson, Mississippi, right? Like, uh, it, oh, but wait, there's more. Uh, I can tell you about community movement builders in Atlanta, Georgia. I can tell you about building fearless futures uh, in Vermont. I can tell you uh, about, like, uh, well, in New York City, actually, as you well know, like the co the cooperative movement and the co-op culture is exploding in that city. It is. It is. And, you know, even in Calcutta, the most successful, biggest co-op is the Usha Sex Workers Co-op of Calcutta. 
that produces their own birth control, that has their own bank, because the bankers who fucked them during the day wouldn't give them a loan later on. So they have their own banks, they have their own everything. There are like 17 different uh, Yeah, jokes and that's 20,000 people that are in that co-op. It's amazing, but we don't read about it. And if we did, we'd be inspired. That's why we don't read about it. That's right, right? The, the corporate media is never going to actually allow those stories. And I'll tell you, the corporate media learned a lesson uh, 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 about letting Ralph Nader get famous, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because like, they'll never let, like, I think that they look back and said, oh, it was a mistake to let him on the Merv Griffith show and exactly. have somebody like him just talk so plainly. A consumer advocate who was threatening well, the sponsors. Exactly. He was a consumer exactly. advocate. That's they don't exist Bob, anymore. That's why Bob Henley was asked to leave CBS because he offended one of their um, big advertisers and to leave WN by WNYC because he offended a big sponsor because they don't want that. They don't want straight talk. Look, they asked Rick Wolf to write an op-ed for the New York Times, but then they wouldn't publish it. Okay. Wow. You know, again, I've, I've quoted one of my favorite po uh, political analysts before on this show. I'm going to do it again. And this, my, my favorite political analyst said, no matter how cynical I get, it's hard to keep up. Lily Allen, uh, Lily Tomlin. Right. Lily Tomlin said that. And it's like, yes, like they, they are just shameless. They are shameless. They are. They are. Well, let, let me let me imagine the stuff they do. Let me bring up. Uh, I remember Professor Rick Wolf talking about how Americans lack the vocabulary to understand where they're where they're at. And I, I love that term that we lack the vocabulary. So I like to think that doctors, medical doctors are somewhat intelligent. Right. Yeah. You yeah. should know. Well, they're educated. they're educated in medicine and they're, you know, exactly. they know you can make money doing that. But I'll tell you, I am the child of a professor of pediatrics and my father, too, couldn't get over it. They are so stupid. But they do know medicine. They're savants. Is it fair they to say? They know medicine, but they don't know. My father used to say as a professor of pediatrics, the hardest thing to get across to my students is that patient in front of you is a child. Mm-hmm person and a vulnerable child. Right. But so you kind we, of miss the boat then. You we, don't realize that's a human. We, we like to think that doctors know medicine, right? This is uh, from Medscape. Physicians experience the highest suicide rate of any profession. With one suicide each day, a physician commits suicide in America each day, they have the highest rate in any profession. If you're a doctor, compared to all the other jobs, you are more likely than anybody else to commit suicide. What does that tell you about the medical profession? Because I think I know why doctors in America are depressed. I don't think they have the kind of suicide rate that we have in Canada. I don't think Great Britain I don't think the number no, one. Not in, not in public medicine. 
and you know the two kind the kind of medical doctor that commits suicide most is psychiatrists because they have to pretend they pretend that they're not vulnerable and they're psychopharmacologists on the take because look physicians in the United States the average of what you get is 30 grand a year for pushing a particular medication using it in your practice and also talking it up to your peers at a wine and cheese where the wine and cheese is provided by the drug company if you say and some Lipitor here, for the cheese exactly the you know if you're critical you're off the gravy train right right and so you have a sold out group of people who are supposed to take care of us. There's a real contradiction. And that must be painful to live with. It must be painful to be a doctor in America. I don't think anybody goes into medicine for the money. I think it's oh, a, I think a lot of them do. I think it's All a part of it. Students, I know it's they a part of it. it and make money. And but, they spend their years in medical school and in internship when other people are maturing and having relationships. They're in school and out of the loop. So they're quite stupid. Well, Emotionally and intellectually quite stupid. It must be difficult to for a lot of doctors to dedicate your life to healing, only to discover that half your time is spent dealing with health insurance companies. That's right. And also, a lot of it is spent trying to pay back the enormous loans you had if you weren't rich to begin with to pay for the school. And so it's very tempting when you have an opportunity to work for a drug company and do very little extra and get minimum 30 grand a year. You know, someone like Dr. Biederman, the head of the American Child Psychiatry Association, got millions. And he also because he wrote articles excusing Zyprexa for children's problems. It causes diabetes, it doesn't help them, it makes them fat, and it was just corruption. He got huge money. But that field is so saturated with corruption, it wouldn't be if it were a public field, if there were universal health care, because salaries would be regulated. You know, that's again, it's back to the system, right? When, right. when, when folks say that the U.S. healthcare system is broken, I like to correct them and say it's not broken. It's working exactly as it's designed to operate. It's treating healthcare as a commodity to be bought and paid for at a profit. Now, if we start from the premise that healthcare is a fundamental human right, then we can say, well, this system is terrible because it does not actually do that. But that's the problem. We don't look at healthcare. Healthcare is a commodity in this culture and in this political economy. And it's why it is connected. Like, and we can have better versions of healthcare in this system. We don't have to wait for the glorious day of the people's paradise. Uh, before we can begin to make changes and, and, you know, really, again, you can make improvements. But at the end of the day, I constantly am clear, I am a revolutionary because I want to restructure society. Now, I'm a peaceful revolutionary. I don't believe in taking up arms uh, to try to 
to overthrow the state. So for the FBI uh, uh, folks who are been t- yeah, you're not uh, keeping an eye on Feldman. Like I want to be clear, I'm not calling for armed uh, insurrection. I am calling though for the peaceful restructuring of the political economy of the United States of America. And Dr. Fraud, one of the reasons I do that for two reasons. One, because it's true, I am a revolutionary. I believe that we have to restructure society. The second reason I do it on shows like this is because I'm trying to normalize that conversation. I'm trying to give other people permission to imagine that we have the ability to restructure society and the responsibility. The way all these other people did. Look, they have public medical care in France, in England, in Germany, in Sweden, and all those countries. And look, what you have here is a market-driven healthcare system. And so it operates, there's four big monopolies that work on it, oligopolies really, which are the hospitals, the American Medical Association and the doctors, the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies. And they interweave to create a market-driven system that deprives people of quality child, of quality healthcare. And so that those structures have to be public. You cannot allow for oligopolistic systems to take care of our bodies because they're not interested in that. They're all interested in profiting. And that has to change. And, you know, you, you can't have that. Just like you can't have agribusiness profiting from pesticides take care of our food. It's the same thing everywhere. And unfortunately, healthcare is no different. Those four interests dominate, shape, and destroy our ability to have a healthcare system that works, which is why we're the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but not the most effective. The last three years, people die younger and younger. And it's not just the pandemic because other countries aren't doing that. It's the healthcare system, and it's also the sense of hope that people have here. These are facts that the American people are not privy to. They they experience it anecdotally, and so they they succumb to anti-vaxxers. They succumb to conspiracy theories because the corporate media. It's a cliche. The corporate media has a stranglehold on the truth. People know something's up. And they know they're getting shafted. Who's telling them the truth? Alex Jones, Joe Rogan, Jimmy Dore, the the people who traffic in conspiracy theories. Because they know they can't trust anybody. That's right. And they have displaced their, it's a classic psychological displacement. Their anger is real. But putting it against a a vaccine is their rage and hatred at a corrupt market-driven medical system. But the vaccine is not where it belongs. It belongs at those four mega corporate entities, hospitals, doctors, insurance companies, and pharmaceutical companies that work together to deprive them of healthcare. Yeah, the the shock that Biden expresses towards the anti-vaxxers it, it's not disingenuous. I, I do think he no, is. I think he's shocked. 
he's shocked. He really is shocked because he can't make connections between saying Medicare for all will never happen on my watch and 99% of his country hating the medical profession. Everybody hates. They, they might love their own doctor, but the idea the same way they might like their own congressperson, but the idea of the medical community, they loathe. They, they hate it and they, they feel cheated because they are. They feel lied to because they are. We're the only country in the whole world that allows direct consumer advertising of medical medicines. The only one. But that's to shut Rachel Maddow up. In other yeah, words, they're buying her. They're advertising on MSNBC and CNN to silence MSNBC and CNN. I don't think anybody's really going to their doctor and asking about Cerebrex. I think it's just you shut your mouth, Wolf Blitzer, about the pharma, the pharmacological stranglehold we have on this economy. I also think, though, that people do think, oh, that'll make me happy. Because on the radio, they don't have that in 75% of cases, they don't know those uh, SSRIs, anti-depression drugs, don't work, but they do have side effects. No, they didn't even, Prozac, that listening to Prozac was a bestseller. Nobody knew it was subsidized by the drug companies. So people literally don't know. But the book was subsidized by the drug companies? Yes, it was. It came out later. Yes, the person who wrote it got his money from the pharmaceutical industry, the makers of Prozac. And so people do feel that what you hear isn't necessarily true, and they're constantly being tricked. They're surrounded by advertising, which is lying to them. So they have a sense that they're lied to, and they're right. And we have to make sure they know who's lying. Right, and what we do... I was talking about you, you've pointed out on the show, Dr. Fraud, that people who are anti-vaxxers come by it honestly, the, the socioeconomic pressures on why, A, you can't take time off to go get vaccinated and B, why should you trust? How has the medical establishment earned your trust? But what we do, and I'm guilty of it, a little. I mostly go after the charlatans at the top who are pushing the anti-vax stuff. But we blame the victims in this country. Look at that idiot. They look at them die. I've heard people say, look at that person with their deathbed. Mia culpa. I should have gotten vaccinated. Screw them. That person who didn't get vaccinated is keeping a, a serious illness from being treated. The hostility we have towards each other, the we we the hostility we have horizontally towards a fellow citizen who's an anti-vaxxer instead of going vertically and looking at who's influencing this anti-vaxxer and why they're in you know what we don't do is say well there's a human being why why would they be they must have something you know they must have some reason to distrust the pfizer and distrust the government and of course they do and they don't have 
an alternative voice because the left has not had its voice since the 50s, since the anti-communist crusades of the 50s and the labor movement acquiescing to that. Now that's changing as the labor movement is picking up and it's changing as people are realizing they're shafted, but they have the media except for shows like this, you know, and, and it's very hard to reach people. There's so much mistrust. Yes. That's why, you know, I found if I'm, if I talk to people who start out being anti-vax or anti-immigrant or something, and I just let them talk about why and what are the things in their lives that led them there, they usually change their mind. Great. But they've never been heard and they don't understand. Well, Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism His Home and It's Not Just In Your Head. And how do people... Of Not Just In Your Head with Max Golding. Yes. How do people contact you? They could go to my website, www.harrietfraud.com or they could contact me personally if they want to. Hfraud at gmail. Thank you. We're very grateful for you. And David Cobb, how do people contact you? Well, you know, uh, I'm on Facebook at David Keith Cobb. I am on Twitter at David K. Cobb. And like Dr. Frog, you can hit me up on a personal email, David K. Cobb at gmail.com. Uh, you know, so and I see uh, my uh, my dear old friend Peter B. Collins is is on. Uh, so I'm going to stop talking. Thank you, Dr. Fraud. It was such a Thank pleasure you. to share really that. Exciting to talk together. Yes, absolutely. Bye, y'all. Thank you. I think I've taken his turn too. So it's time for Peter Collins to be on. So I can talk about another topic another time if it's best for your time management. Yeah, we're, we're, we should uh, next week, please. Yes, next week. You got it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. And we are doing a Twitter poll tonight. The question is, let's go to it right now. Pick the more vile corn-filled effluvium. Is it Manchin or Mnuchin? And 66% of my Twitter followers say Manchin is more of a vile corn-filled piece of effluvium than Mnuchin, who gets 33%. That's today's Twitter poll. It's my way of trying to get you to uh, subscribe to me on Twitter. I'm trying to build up. I need more followers on Twitter because I'm still stuck in high school. That's you know, I don't know. Today is today is election day in Canada, and we are following that. And it is uh, you're required to wear a mask to vote in person. You don't have to be vaccinated to vote in Canada. The polling locations vary from province to province, but each province, each polling station is open for 12 hours straight. Closing time ranges from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. 
in local time zones. So the, as I understand it, I, I think, I don't know, Professor Adnan Hussein will be joining us at nine o'clock to fill us in on the elections in Canada. When we come back, we will be joined by Peter B. Collins. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. he tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And go to my website and sign up for Office Hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Office Hours, if you would like to sit in the virtual studio audience, there's a button to press so you get an invite. We record here every Monday and Thursday live in the Zoom room starting at 5 PM, we go to around 10, 11, I don't know. And we're also live streaming this on YouTube as we speak. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're slowly growing our YouTube channel. Peter B. Collins was recently inducted into the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. Go to peterbcollins.com to listen to his latest podcast. I'm going to turn... Uh, David Cobb off, if that's okay. You're welcome to chime in later. Thank you. Welcome, Peter B. Collins. You're muted. Hang on for one second. There, hang on. Let me, can you, un there you go. How about now? Now, much better. Uh, let me just. I want to I give an opening shout out to David Cobb. He uh, turned me into a Green Party voter. And uh, I am grateful to him for all the work he's done over the years. Also, I, I laughed out loud at your Twitter poll today, and uh, I, I want to stoke a little uh, action for Steve Mnuchin. Mm -hmm. He's a grisly character who presided over the uh, 2008 uh, meltdown of the economy, the predatory uh, foreclosure operations, uh, made uh, tons of money on it. And he was one of the true dark figures of the Trump administration. Uh, Manchin is more of a clear and present danger. Uh, 
There's no doubt about it. But Mnuchin, he's evil, too. He is pretty evil. He, he, he's a Louise Litton, his wife, who married him because she's attracted to guys who look like apes. Steve Mnuchin is one. Was it one West? He was just foreclosing on old women. And he should have been prosecuted, but he donated to our vice president's campaign war chest. The thing about Mnuchin is he knows he's evil. He's got when he when he testified before Congress, he had more ticks than the bedsheets at a Trump hotel. <laughs> so, uh, I cannot remember the exact name of the uh Financiopath institution yeah. he ran. Yeah. It wasn't quite one West, but uh, Yeah, it was yes. something. Anyway, yeah. you I you come loaded for I don't want to say bear, but before we talk about what you want to talk about, how are the fires? And tell me about Larry Elder, because I don't think we've talked. Have we talked since Larry Elder? No, that was, was just last week on Tuesday. But what what would you rather talk about, Larry Elder? Well, I'll give you a quick or update on the fires. What's uh, worse, the we, fires we, or Larry Elder? Uh, the fires. Gosh. You'll have to run a Twitter poll on that. <laughs> uh, uh, they're both quite destructive and uh, uh, turn on. They turn on themselves. Yeah. The wildfires uh, are are currently under better control than they have been in weeks. The Caldor fire that has been threatening South Lake Tahoe is largely under control. I think they're claiming almost 70% containment. Uh, we actually had a brief sputtering of, uh, of precipitation, which was uh, something that was a real validation to show Californians that water can still fall from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't much, right? but, uh, you know, my decks were wet and uh, it actually, uh, you know, the, it brought up the relative humidity. And one of the, you know, key contributors to fire conditions is the bone dry humidity in uh, often in single digits. Uh, so, you know, we're in the 20s or something like that today. Uh, there is a red flag warning because we have high uh, onshore winds. They're called Diablos in Northern California, Santa Ana's in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And so we remain on a high alert. And the Dixie Fire, which we now know was uh, another feature of our rogue utility. Was that PG&E? Yeah. Yeah, they did this one, too. Uh, th there's a really good federal judge who is presiding over the ongoing uh, criminal negligence trials of PG&E. He started off with the gas explosion in San Bruno, that's near SFO for people who don't know the geography here. And he has continued to ride herd on their ongoing failures. And the latest is the Dixie Fire uh, was caused by a PG&E circuit. Uh, a line dropped onto a tree. It's the same damn old story and they failed to turn it off. Uh, they had a, 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 actually Judge Alsop uh, brought, uh, he wasn't the Wichita lineman, <laughs> he, he was the PG&E lineman uh, who was on the scene 
And uh, he acknowledged, uh, you know, honestly told them what he saw. And so I, I want to be clear that we don't have quite the definitive proof, but the uh, evidence that's available clearly shows more negligence by Pacific Gas and Electric. And is PG&E out of bankruptcy yet? Yes. Yes, they, they emerged by uh, trading a pile of stock to um, the creditors, including people who are owed money for uh, fires uh, attributed to PG&E's negligence over the last three years, including, of course, the devastating destruction of the town of Paradise. And so many of these people have not gotten their payouts because they were contingent on PG&E stock retaining its value. And of course, the market can smell a rat, and <laughs> it, it has. So Now, PG&E, uh, I, I lived in San Francisco for 12 years. PG&E was what they called a widow's and orphan stock. It's what you, the richest of the rich, had stock and I remember Will Durst called PG&E pricks grabbing everything. <laughs> but they used to say if you own stock in PG&E you will collect a dividend forever and and Lee said Pacific Pacific Gas and Extortion. That so are the widows and orphans the, the people who were left these stocks do they get punished for this? Yes, uh, I, I believe the dividend has been suspended. I don't own any of that stock myself, so I can't tell you uh, uh, accurately, but it was certainly suspended during the bankruptcy. And uh, so they have been hammered as much as anybody else. Now, they're and, a utility, uh, correct? Say again? PG&E is a utility. Right. Yes. Explain to our listeners what a utility means. Well, under the structures of uh, state and federal law, these are uh, entities that are granted a monopoly uh, over a given service area in exchange for a regulated rate of return. And uh, you're really uh, great, by the way. Thank you. You're great. Well, it, this dredges up something that I, I need to share because I've been a long running critic of PG&E. Well, for, but first, first educate, because okay. I'll tell you why I'm asking. We hear there are terms that are bandied about when we talk about Amazon or uh, Google, certainly the Internet and the search engines. People say that either they should be broken up, Google should be broken up or turned into a utility. I hear that over and over again. What is a utility? If, if Google became a utility, a lot of people think it's the highway of search. So before hold on to your criticism, but explain yeah. how a utility would work if if Google became a utility. Well, the, the regulatory structure is that in exchange for the uh, uh, guaranteed rate of return, uh, they're allowed to uh, operate as a monopoly subject to the regulation of a captive agency in California, the PUC, Public Utilities Commission. And even under Jerry Brown, who you know is better than most at taking on uh, the bureaucracy, 
Uh, he, he allowed it to be chaired by a former utility executive, Michael Peavy. Uh, and uh, it's a real crony uh, agency that uh, bends over backwards to do the bidding of PG&E. Uh, there isn't quite a revolving door, but some of the PUC commissioners either, you know, uh, were contractors to PG&E uh, in the past uh, or just, you know, buddies with the people who run it. We're now on, I think, the fifth uh, CEO in the last five years. Uh, it's been uh, quite a mess. But to, to complete the thought here, uh, if Google were converted to a regulated monopoly, uh, we would need robust oversight, which doesn't currently exist. There is an agency called FERC, the Federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commission, which proved uh, just completely useless when you go back 20 years. Gray Davis was the governor. He was subject to a recall. We're going to talk recall here in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was largely driven by uh, a, an energy crisis that was the product of PG&E's self-written uh, uh, provisions to deregulate. And uh, if I may, this goes back to my longer critique of PG&E because when they built the twin reactor Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in the 80s, uh, they fucked it up real bad. Uh, they only discovered uh, shortly before they were ready to flip the switch that they built it on an earthquake fault. And uh, during the construction period, uh, they got about 60, 80% into it. And they said, whoops, we built the cooling system entirely backwards. And the politically connected uh, Republican construction company, Bechtel, based in San Francisco. George Schultz's company. Yes, yes. From Th right. Theranos. He, he was on the board of directors. Yes, yes. I was he talking about Merle. there, too. Yeah. <laughs> you have a good memory, Feldman. Well, I was talking uh, about George Schultz uh, earlier in the show. Okay. Uh, so uh, they then went to great lengths to stick the ratepayers with the cost overruns. And if you know who David K. Johnston is, his middle yes. name is C-A-Y. He goes after Trump. He's written about, is it that? He's, yes, that same guy, Pulitzer Prize winner, yes. former New York Times, uh, San Jose Mercury, I think Philadelphia Inquirer, great reporter. And he's got a, a web-based uh, platform, DC Reports, does a lot of good investigative journalism. David, uh, after he wrote one of his books, came on my podcast. Uh, and since we've talked about it, I'll repost it this week. Good. Uh, and he explained to me uh, the concept of stranded costs. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got some stranded costs, you know, <laughs> things that I'd like somebody else to bail me out for. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the opportunity to get my friends who've been greased at the Public Utilities Commission to let me pass rate increases and soak the rate payers uh, and not charge it to the shareholders. So uh, Johnston did a brilliant job of that, and I can't uh, fully replicate it. But PG&E sought to recover these costs for years. And uh, they were actually the PUC didn't let them, which was shocking. Uh, so then in the late 90s, they wrote their own deregulation package that sailed through the legislature, 
uh, you know, in one house it was 99 to nothing. Uh, and uh, that then uh, took them out of the, the, it created a holding company. And when Enron and El Paso Natural Gas ganged up on California, they jacked up the cost of, the, uh, uh, of natural gas for generation and Enron gummed up the distribution systems. I remember and the tapes of the traders. Go ahead. I, I remember the traders gloating about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Dick Cheney uh, blaming deregulation, uh, uh, regulation. He was right. he, the, before 9-11, the scandal was the rolling blackouts in California. Right. And Cheney, who would never open up his logs to tell us who was coming in to formulate energy policy. This was the big issue up until 9-11. Cheney was trying to deregulate the grid. We Ooh. saw rolling blackouts that were blamed on regulation. Then 9-11 happens. Enron, I believe, goes out of business a year later. And we discovered that those rolling blackouts were due to Enron gaming the market because they were unregulated. And Gray Davis, who uh, had just been reelected, uh, went into the California Treasury and bought billions of dollars of power at uh, extortion rates to try to keep the lights on in California. And he thought that uh, FERC was going to order uh, the the gougers to pay some or all of that money back. And ultimately, we got 40 cents on the dollar or something like that. But that brought uh, Gray Davis to his knees. And because he overspent from the budget, a, a sneaky plan to raise the, the car tax, the, the license registration fees, uh, went into effect with no fingerprints. Uh, it had been, it set up with triggers so that it would be increased without any action by any politician so nobody could blame them well schwarzenegger capitalized on that and that's what uh turned the recall uh, uh back there in 2003 or 2004. so uh th this is all interesting history we we still have this ongoing problem and i i put up in the the chat a link to my uh, op-ed that was published today in my local paper, the Marin oh. Independent Journal. Great. And and one of the things that they allowed me to put, I thought they would uh, clean it up and edit it out, but I referred to the pyromaniacs at uh, PG&E. And uh, so the, this recall over the past year has been a huge distraction. And it, it forced Governor Newsom into neutral where he had to back off from additional uh, mandates this year as the uh, latest wave of COVID, uh, the Delta variant, uh, hit the state. We've weathered it bet better than, than most other states. Uh, but in addition, uh, he, he really couldn't do much on homelessness, on, uh, on really coming up with a long-term water distribution problem uh, in the midst of this massive drought. And while he had a windfall of $75 billion that nobody predicted, 
that, that landed in the state accounts uh, early in the year, he was able to buy his way out uh, by hiring more firefighters and, and throwing money at that. He passed out party cash to uh, uh, many taxpayers, including uh, undocumented people. Uh, and of course, the right wing thinks that was to buy their votes, but they don't actually vote. Anyway, uh, the point I made in this op-ed is that the recall uh, really took attention away from most of the important business. I will give credit to the legislature. Uh, they followed through on some Black Lives Matter legislation, and there are two bills sitting on Newsom's desk right now, and I think he will sign them. One uh, rolls back the qualified immunity that police officers uh, hold, which is impunity, and it uh, empowers a, an obscure state commission to uh, decertify police officers who uh, commit a felony and to form a, a first ever registry that 46 other states have, but California doesn't, uh, that basically would prevent a cop who commits a crime in jurisdiction A from uh, resigning before really being punished for it and then moving to another jurisdiction somewhere else in the state where a redneck sheriff or police chief will hire that person. Uh, secondly, it, uh, there, there's a separate bill, SB 16, that uh, ends the total secrecy of the uh, uh, employment files of bad cops. And the combination of the two is a great step forward. It could have been better. It's sausage and, you know, they watered it down or put a lot of sawdust in there. Uh, but it, it's, it's notable progress. Beyond that, um, we, we've had a legislature that was paralyzed because it's controlled by Democrats in both houses. And they didn't want to do anything to put fuel on the fire against Newsom with the recall pending. On the other side of it, we had these hyper-partisan uh, MAGA types who uh, gathered the signatures, put the recall on the ballot, and uh, they weren't dealing with substantive, substantive issues. Just a lot of bumper sticker stuff about, you know, on day one, there'll be no mask mandates, and on day two, uh, you know, we will uh, stop uh, vaccination mandates. And, and so it, it was mostly based on emotion. And David, this is the uh, takeaway that I haven't heard. There's been a lot of coverage of the recall and a fair amount of analysis, and I, I don't disagree with much of it. But the, the, the strain that was not uh, addressed is that this was a duel of fear mongers, all right? So the right wing promotes the fear of libtards, and Newsom is a corporate Democrat, uh, not an evil man, but captive to uh, corporate interests in Silicon Valley, no, no question about it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the way I describe it is that they say that anybody to the left of the far right is an extreme leftist, socialist, communist, uh, dangerous, got to throw them out. So that was the fear up to quote Don Rumsfeld. And if you remember uh, back when he uh, opened Guantanamo and was encouraging torture, um, he used uh, fear as a verb. 
And the whole idea was to get people to talk by uh, scaring the total shit out of them. And the, the language was fear up. But I have to say that the Democrats resorted to the same tactics. And once Larry Elder, the black uh, radio host, and, and I'm, I'm going to come back to Elder because you asked about him and I want to uh, expose his, his network a little bit. Uh, but once Elder started to show up in the polls as the far and away leading uh, Republican in the second portion of the recall, uh, it was a rich target for Newsom and his consultants. And he's got very good uh, political consultants. Ace Smith is the guy who runs his campaigns. And uh, one of the problems that came up in the polls as of July was that Democratic voters were blasé about it. They didn't think that uh, Newsom was remotely vulnerable. And uh, the polls were scary in July that showed that of likely voters, uh, he only had a three, a three percentage point uh, cushion. Uh, so they whipped those polls. Then they whipped up uh, a lot of fear about Larry Elder. Uh, they used Texas abortion vigilante law to uh, rile up uh, choice voters in California. They're not all women, but uh, largely that's the profile. And, and so I, I've been looking at this, <clears throat> this fear quotient in our politics and particularly in elections, going back to 2000, when uh, it, it was relatively mild, uh, and the, the post-election shenanigans uh, distracted us, but there, there was a fear element that Al Gore tried to use that, you know, the George Bush is dangerous, and he was right. Uh, and, and then it, it escalated in 2004, where John Kerry ran this uh, really bad campaign where it was just, I'm a soldier, I'm going to end the war in Iraq. And he told the progressives to get behind that free speech chain link fence in Boston and stay there and shut up. <laughs> so then to reporting for duty, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. Exact amount. So uh, then in, in 2008, uh, we were afraid of Sarah Palin. Uh, in 2012, it was uh, Romney and the uh, vulture capitalists. Uh, and then, of course, it, it hit a peak and didn't work in 2016 because Hillary was such a hideous candidate, uh, despised by the right and the left. Uh, that you could not scare people enough uh, about Trump. And so I'm of the opinion that this California recall really doesn't tell us much about the rest of the country. Uh, it was a desperate ploy to use this low benchmark where Republicans, once they got Newsom with a 50% plus one yes vote on the recall, could win with a schlub like Elder, uh, who only got 26% of, of the total vote. And, and so uh, they're desperate. They know they can't win next year in a, a, a regular election. Uh, they only appealed to their base as if 
they couldn't count because their base in California isn't big enough unless the Democrats stayed home. And because we voted by mail, you could stay home and vote. Right. <laughs> so staying home didn't really mean much. Right. Uh, so it's that fear mongering that I think has reached the point that you were talking about in the previous segment, where it's all this fear of the other driven by a lot of disinformation. Uh, although when, when you're attacking uh, the right from the left, there is plenty to be afraid of uh, yeah. in, in terms of what a Larry Elder would do. However, when you look at the big picture, let's assume that Larry Elder had won, okay, and gamed the system and been the top vote getter in the replacement vote. It would have been all talk because he, he couldn't get a damn thing through the Democratic-controlled legislature. He would have served for about 16 months. Uh, it's hard to believe he, that he could win against Newsom or anybody else in November of 22. And so uh, I personally, even when it was close in those July polls, I wasn't sweating it uh, because I, I didn't think that Newsom would lose. And I, I did think that the worst case was not that bad. But let me, let me finish on Larry Elder because People need to understand that, that he came out of KABC in Los Angeles, but he's now featured on the Salem Radio Network. And Rel Salem they're religious a, freaks, right? Yes, it's nominally a Christian company, but they have three flavors, three brands. Uh, one is a fairly innocuous uh, Christian music uh, format for FM stations. The other is a fairly traditional Bible teaching, Bible thumper, uh, advertiser-supported uh, uh, network that, uh, you know, gets Christians to support Christian businesses, and it, it works for them. But the third is a right-wing talk radio network that uh, does play to Christian values and... and like getting uh, rid of the minimum wage, hating immigrants, being against free medical care, all the things Jesus would want. <laughs> Well, Larry is at the extreme right of, of that spectrum. Uh, the other hosts on Salem are not quite as bad, but uh, it, it flies under the radar of most of the people who are smart enough to listen to the David Feldman podcast. And it's a very dangerous uh, system that allows hate talk with the blessing of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Well, it's uh, great to have you. I hope you'll come back next week. This was just, there's, we're out of time. We're going to go. Well, David, I, I, I plan to be, be available on Mondays. And like you, I am watching the uh, Canadian election. That's where we're going to hope that I hope Fidel Trudeau does uh, uh, hold on to power there. He's, he's better than the alternative. Yes. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com. There's a treasure trove of podcasts and radio shows, and uh, you'll get you'll go down a rabbit hole that's good for you. <laughs> Thank you, Thank you, David. Thank you, Peter you B. Collins. Thank you. you. 
Well, Professor Adnan Hussein will be with us in two minutes. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, Friday night, every Friday night, starting at 8 p.m. It's office hours. And we'll do, why don't we do this if Dan is okay with it? We'll talk to Professor Adnan Hussein about the Canadian elections, which are taking place. This is the second time in two years that they're holding a federal election in Canada. Mr. Trudeau, the son of Pierre Elliott, is seeking his third term in office. He called a snap election two years early. And we'll go over this with Professor Adnan Hussein, who I saw was hanging out with Jagmeet Singh, who's the head, I think, of the New Democratic Party. I think it's called the New Democratic Party. Or, yeah, something like that. Hey, Dan, can you come on after Professor Hussein? And we'll do Community Billboard, and then we'll do Professor Marianne Cummings, and we'll get out of here with our dignity intact. Well, that's optimistic. Okay, let us now go to Kingston, Ontario, where Professor Adnan Hussein is standing by. He is the host of Guerrilla History, as well as chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Welcome, Professor Adnan Hussein. You look like you're coming to us from someplace very uh, authoritative. Oh, it's, it's my uh, office on campus that I've spent almost no time in over the last uh, 18 plus months. But I happen to be uh, assigned near the end of the day uh, to move over from the very rural um, kind of zone that I was doing some election scrutinizing and get out the vote work down near campus because there was um, incredible overflow um, at the two polling stations right near campus. So, so students were lined up like completely around the block, hundreds of them waiting two hours uh, in order to um, vote. Many of them uh, have to register uh, because they've moved from home to a new district, new writing as it's called. And um, that process takes time and these polls were completely overwhelmed this exact same problem happened in exactly the same two polls that i noticed uh, in 2019 when the last federal elections took place and they even ran out of voter registration forms then and um, instead of remedying the problem uh, that very same problem happened again so the campaign manager of uh, the local NDP candidate um, had to actually go out and photocopy more for the Elections Canada okay to to photocopy more registration forms because here we do have same day registration you can register and then immediately go vote um but they'd run out of these so uh polls close at 9 30. i took a break to duck in here um but, so let me uh, set we the state because we have some international listeners there is a federal election going on in canada it's big pierre i want to say pierre Elliot Trudeau, 
Justin Trudeau, who was just endorsed by our own Barack Obama. I'm going to ask you about that, whether or not that's legal. He's the head of the Liberal Party. You need 170 seats in the parliament to be uh, the winner. Yeah, to win a majority. To win a majority. And he's uh, got 155. The Liberals have 155 votes. They have projected. To- yeah. Yeah. They have that. And they're projected to have about 140 plus or minus five. So you might actually lose a few seats. So they have to form coalitions. They have to reach out. I would assume and I have this up on the screen. The other parties are <laughs> the conservative party run by Aaron O'Toole. And then there's Bloc Quebecois, yes. NDP. Green and the People's Party. So let me ask you, Justin Trudeau is not going to get 170 seats. I don't think so. No. So he has to reach out. He has to reach out. He's not going to reach out to the Conservative Party. Is he going to reach out to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, Green Party people? Who does he go to to get the extra seats? I mean, he already was, um, you know, in a minority situation. He did not have enough in 2019 to form a majority. But because they had the most seats, they could form a government as long as there is no vote, um, you know, a confidence vote on a key or major uh, issue. Um, There were attempts to actually create a governing coalition that would have been more stable by making an some kind of an agreement but he refused to do that uh even threatened you know you know to make uh an agreement um with uh you know other partners to avoid having to be in an actual governing coalition with the ndp so they might try and do the same thing um of governing with a minority and just trying to avoid any key confidence votes that is a vote that the government, um, you know, might potentially lose and um, therefore, uh, you know, the government would fall and you would have a snap election. So but given that we already had that period for two years like that, um, you know, it actually would make a lot of sense to try and make a coalition. And the natural partner here really would be the NDP because they they're um Policies like, you know, you see with Bernie Sanders policies set happen to be much more popular overall in the general population. You know, so tell me about Jagmeet Singh. Is he a sick? Yeah, he's a he's a sick lawyer from the Toronto area uh, from Toronto. And um, he is actually the only part federal party leader that actually has a kind of positive approval rating. Uh, he's actually quite popular now because this is a parliamentary system you're you know not running for like an office of the president where if you're the most popular you would you know win if you're one of the most popular of the six candidates i mean he has an approval rating that's you know uh well over 50 percent into 60 65 percent uh he's looked upon favorably but he's uh a figure who uh, is the leader of a minority party that typically only gets about 19 to 21 percent of the overall vote. Um, And as a result, because Canada does have a first past the post system that all you need to do is win by one over any 
of the others and you get the seat. Um, you don't have to have a majority. You just need to have one more vote than the second place, second best vote getter. Um, and as a result, that means that uh, very few seats, given the vote distribution, even if you have 19 or 20 percent of the overall electoral vote, you may only have about seven to 10 percent of the seats. So there's the projection that they would have about 30, 31 seats. So um, when will we know the results? Sometime tonight, I think probably the basic outlines will be known. They're already tallying, but they don't announce anything, of course, until polls close. So I would say soon after 930, we'll be getting some sense of the overall picture. There will be some ridings that is districts that are hotly contested that we'll have to wait to see. But there will be an overall picture, I think, pretty clearly. And what are what's at stake? What is it? What's at stake? What, What are the issues? Well, the issues are, uh, of course, how well uh, this, you could say that this is something of a referendum on how well Justin Trudeau's government, liberal government, managed the COVID pandemic, even though, of course, actual health policy in many respects was at the provincial level. But, um, you know, they did put in something like a, a UBI program during the duration of Uh, you know, last year at the start of the pandemic and so on at the behest of the NDP. So this was the important thing that, you know, in government, uh, you know, it was basically the policy of the NDP that the liberals, you know, were pressed to adopt. And that has been quite popular. So so you're Uh, you're speaking in short end, the New Democratic Party, Jagmeet Singh's party, the New Democratic Party, Demanded um, UBI. Demanded, yeah, demanded. Basically, it was called a CERB, but that was a UBI program for during the pandemic. And so that was very popular. It was passed under this. And what is government. the how much? Well, it was about two thousand dollars a month. And it wasn't a one time check or payment. It was a continuing monthly payment, you know, uh, if you qualified and almost everybody you know, could qualify if you met certain, you know, kinds of conditions. Could you have a job and also collect the UBI? Uh, no. Uh, well, I mean, you, you could uh, if you were furloughed. Right. So this was sort of if you were furloughed from your from your job right. uh, because of the lockdown, then you would be able to qualify for this. And is there is there a shortage of workers do you hear people saying yes of course the conservatives are claiming the same thing that this ubi has made it impossible to hire and we have exactly the same kind of discourse in fact actually what i would say is more than in most years the trump phenomenon and the conservative uh kind of discourse is pulling a lot from the u.s because the u.s elections preceded and so a lot of parameters i think are you know finding their way and so you also have the people's party of canada that's one of the parties um that is is uh, maxime bernier extreme right wing oh because here it's uh extreme right wing pretending to be left so they're just open (laughs) the people's party is openly right wing well, yes, I mean, they're just avowedly anti, uh, 
you know, immigrant. They're against the, the vaccine mandates that have come up at lots of institutions. Ontario is putting in uh, kind of more restrictions with a vaccine passport type situation where certain kinds of venues will only be open if you can demonstrate that you've been, you know, vac- double vaccinated and so on. And they are absolutely outraged by it. They're really a kind of quasi-Trump sort of And you phenomenon. have the police... They're protesting the vaccine. I'm curious, you were born in America. You're an American citizen. You're living in Canada. You get a different perspective on right-wing politics because here in America, it's one thing. But in Canada, the right-wing politics, the anti-vaxxing, where does that come from in Canada? Give me some insight what, what have you learned about the anti-vaxxers in Canada that could shed light on what's going on here in the United States? Is it the same source? There, of it? there are similar sources, um, kind of extreme libertarians. But is it uh, a universal who... impulse to be anti-vax? I always think well, it's being I always think these people are being stirred to think this way by guys like Joe Rogan who want to sell them supplements. Joe Rogan sells supplements, so he wants to boost your immunity so he can make money. And if you take a vaccine, you won't buy a supplement. So that's how I explain the anti-vax movement in America. Is it the Who's fanning that up there? Uh, well, I think it's, you know, really a lot of similar sorts of figures. I mean, there's a very anti-establishment kind of tendency. People who have been uh, angered by neoliberal policies, who are feel threatened by immigration, um, they are susceptible to some of the suspicion of authority. And once the government kind of came out fully behind a lockdowns and these sorts of controls and masking mandates, and then the vaccine rollout became, uh, you know, it was like in the U.S., it was, you know, voluntary, but increasingly institutions started requiring it for their employees. So, you know, the universities have required it now. Almost all the universities are requiring this mandate. And and so, uh, you know, that has become a, a flashpoint for people who um, are suspicious of um, authority, you know, um, the, the kind of consensus corporate uh, authority. And instead of it going to... Uh, sort of left emancipatory workers sort of solidarity movement, it moves towards this kind of radicalization against governing authorities. It's a kind of right-wing populism. And that uh, PPC, People's Party of Canada, um, did very, very poorly at the last election, but they're projecting that they will go up to 6% and double the vote for the Green Party of Canada, which is, you know, a long-standing small party, but that had something of, you know, uh, you know, it was well-known in Canada. This party has emerged just in the last, like, three years and is really, I think, benefiting from the fact that uh, there's a whole wing of conservatives. There still are the sort of Romney 
kind of Republicans that are still in the conservative party in Canada like that. They were called red Tories. You know, they're they're the Tories. The red is the color of the liberals and blue is is the Tory party's color. They were called red Tories because on, you know, social issues, they were pretty open minded and tolerant. They were just conservative on being kind of pro business and very kind of, you know, pro law and order, you know, that kind of um, Romney Republican, you know, the the Rockefeller Republicans, you know, that have totally disappeared in the U.S. Republican Party. They still kind of exist. And so as a result, the conservative party in Canada has not been, you know, it's got these divide, these divisions and these two wings, and that has hampered them during this period and allowed the People's Party of Canada to siphon off a certain amount. And as a result, Aaron O'Toole, the people's, you know, the uh, uh, Conservative Party leader, has been a little confused about how to um, maintain you know, a health conscious uh, conservative community that, you know, cares about law and order is in, in favor of these, you know, uh, protocols to stop COVID uh, without hemorrhaging support on this increasingly radicalized anti-establishment kind of politics, populist politics. But you don't have these Cretans screaming about their freedoms, do, do you? Oh, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. This, yeah, the, the, absolutely. They are mimicking exactly the same kind of idea. I saw a rally, you know, in Whitby uh, over the weekend with people um, gathered together, close together, unmasked uh, with signs saying, you cannot take our freedoms, you know, no, no you know, fascism, fa- no vaccine fascism. You know, there was all this kind of rhetoric and discourse that I think is bleeding over maybe from U.S. kinds of, um, you know, right-wing media, but uh, it has taken hold here. And I'm actually surprised at how many people I know who are not, who are opposed to getting the vaccine or vaccine hesitant or openly really upset about, uh, about the imposition of this. We were just talking to Dr. Harriet Frott and we were showing sympathy for the anti-vaxxers because here in America, why would you trust Big Pharma? Why would you trust our doctors? Because they're all in cahoots with the insurance companies. This is, yeah, this is the problem is that, you know, anti-corporatist, corporatist, leftist, you know, rhetoric has been, um, effective in the wrong way i mean it's in it seems like what it has is, is enabled right wing uh right wingers to adopt the same to find support in left wing critiques and say see even the left right. like agrees that right. these pharmaceutical companies will pervert the research and and corrupt the science and corrupt the po- the political decisions public health right and as a result, um, you know, that sort of suspicion. Um, you but know, I don't is, understand, but, but this goes against our narrative, which is if you gave the American people free health care, they would be less prone to the conspiracies about vaccines. But you're saying people in Canada well, were... Well, what I what I would say is that there's a smaller proportion of people who are subscribing to this. I mean, like in the U.S., it seems like it's 30, 35 percent of people are in this at least vaccine hesitant, if not 
further, you know, over into being hostile to it. Um, you know, in Canada, I would say it's much more like, you know, 10, you know, to 12, 15%. Right. Some of them will stay in the Conservative Party and vote for it. And I think the People's Party of Canada will probably get six to eight percent of the vote or somewhere between five and ten for sure which is astonishing for an extremely right-wing anti-immigrant sort of fascistic party that only you know appeared three years basically right. uh, ago so you can't disentangle politics from money we, we just in america it's all about money it's all about raising cash for the permanent campaign when Trudeau calls a snap election, it's mm -hmm. in five weeks. Yeah, that's right. It's a very short um, window of time for the for the actual. Campaign. Are you being inundated by television ads? Uh, there are television ads. Um, I don't watch a lot of like just regular television. And I think a younger generation watches almost no television. They just get, you know, their news on YouTube and they, you know, watch Netflix and so on. And so I don't know if that's the most kind of useful way to reach people. I have, however, seen a lot of billboards. I've seen a lot, you know, suddenly within a week of the election being called, lawn signs are everywhere, billboards are up. Do you need a lot of money? to run these campaigns? Is it as expensive? Do you have the... It's not quite as expensive. I mean, obviously it helps if you have more money and the conservatives typically are the best funded. And so as a result, they're able to blanket the airwaves much more. Uh, but because it's such a short period of time, it doesn't cost as much. I mean, if you think about you know, two years essentially of nonstop fundraising in order to run for, you know, office in the U.S. And that includes, you know, even congressional districts. They basically they have a month to settle in and then immediately they're still fundraising. And so the election seasons are so long uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, you can do some preparation and fundraising beforehand. You need to have your coffers, you know, filled. But there, you're actually, for in certain respects, you're not allowed actually to um, put uh, uh, signs up. Or yeah, Great Britain, they limit ads. advertising. Yeah, you can't run ads outside of this window. You know, you cannot be running ads for the coming election that you may anticipate before this, before what's called the writ drops, which is when it is actually called, and then you have a specific timetable. Then you can start doing real electioneering. And what about what about anymore. issue ads? I uh, I don't see a lot of issue ads on on you know we don't have this kind of proposition sort of system which is the you know most overt way in which you would run issue ads because you have an actual referendum or a proposition on a particular item i don't really see that sort of issue issue ad um and the debates know, have, how many televised debates were you able to see and do they yeah do they, they ask they real questions have, yeah they do i mean they have about um you know, two or three, uh, you know, at least two. They'll have two, and they will also have them in French. So you'll have a French leaders debate and an English leaders debate, and you may have more than one of those. Uh, are there any the candidates who don't speak French? Well, there are candidates who don't speak good French, but if you want to be a party leader in a federal election in Canada, your chances of being chosen are not good if you don't have at least passable 
workable French, but I mean, I've heard some of the most atrocious sounding. Black Quebec, yeah, Black uh, Quebecois. Yeah, I would assume they represent. They tend to do well in the in the French debates and can articulate themselves very well, of course. And well, are they go into they the parliament have... just focused on the needs of Quebec. Yes, yes. This is constantly, you know, that's who they're. Uh, they're not looking for votes outside. They don't run candidates anywhere else. They are a national party. They understand themselves as a distinct nation. And their position is that Quebec should have greater autonomy. In so there's only one real party in Quebec. Well, no, there are many parties. There's a liberal party. And in fact, actually, the Bloc uh, Québécois doesn't always win in Quebec, you know, I mean. Uh, but what they, are, send, what, what they send to Ottawa tends to be. They send representatives when they win in ridings, federal, you know, ridings, that is districts. Right. They elect members of parliament who go uh, to the federal parliament, but on some level don't actually you know, the rhetoric of it is that they don't actually recognize that the federal government really should have, you know, bear all these powers over the province. Is there Quebec, a, because it's not a province for them, it's a nation. Are they are there province rights people who believe in a smaller, you know, do they run against Ottawa? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. People run against Ottawa. That was like very important for um you know, uh, Western conservatives before they actually joined the federal progressive conservative party, they had a, you know, a different party and it ended up, they amalgamated and, and, um, became just the conservative party and took out the progressive. Um, that party was constantly running against Ottawa and they, you know, there's a lot of Western kind of animosity for the, East Coast elite, essentially, the idea that Ontario and Quebec, kind of the most populous provinces, run the show and the priorities of the federal government reflect those provinces. And we out in Alberta, Manitoba, you know, these, you know, Saskatchewan, uh, we're uh, British Columbia, even to some extent, we're left out in the cold. So this is human Um, nature. This isn't yeah, just this endemic is, to it, America. You run that. But, you know, it's interesting. There isn't quite as much the same sort of states rights. So there may be like, you know, uh, animosity towards Ottawa, but they don't quite frame it in the sort of states rights, you know, kind of language, which is a powerful discourse, of course, in American politics since the beginning in order to preserve, you know, segregation and slavery and right. so on. Um, so, but there is, you know, uh, interest in greater autonomy, provincial autonomy and resentment at, you know, Ottawa. And usually these are from, you know, from uh, parts of the country that have received a lot of payments from the you know, federal government. So it's just like what we see in uh, the U.S. where the, you know, the anti-government rhetoric comes most powerfully in places that, you know, really only exist with the kind of infrastructure and services that they have because of federal support and tax taxes going, you know, to them. But this is, you know... These are these these conundrums of politics. Uh, I don't know how you solve them, but they seem to be consistent. That the victim politic, you know, the sort of sense of a grievance, um, is always a, a good bet. Uh, you know, to run on, on on grievances against the center. I love the name of the leader of the Conservative Party. It's so apt, Aaron O'Toole. A t- Nothing, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Tool. I've been seeing quite a few jokes about that. Yes, and uh, is he uh, as bad as 
we can imagine. Well, it's astonishing that he is getting, you know, at the start when Trudeau called this election that he didn't need to call, this was his choice, as, you know, uh, you know, in government they can choose when they will have this election, but he had a couple of years, could have continued um, governing as a minority government. He wanted a majority. He called this election thinking that the fourth wave, you know, wouldn't affect things, you know, people had been vaccinated mostly, and so he thought it was a good time to do it. But also, it looked like Aaron O'Toole um, was a very weak leader. You know, his popularity was really low. He'd made a few gaffes. He seemed very unclear on whether how he was going to resolve this question of, you know, uh, resentment of the vaccination kind of policy, you know, versus other just basically pro-business and pro-establishment elements of the Conservative Party. And um, so his popularity was really quite low, uh, but it has skyrocketed <laughs> since the since the calling of the election. And now, um, basically, the conservatives are polling at or above um, Trudeau. But because of the vote distribution, there are areas of the country where there are very bad super majorities, like in Alberta, Western BC, parts of the prairies. But there are other places where, you know, they're the third party really behind the liberals and the NDP. And so as a result, they won't necessarily win the number of seats that you would expect for a party that will receive 33 odd percent of the overall vote share. So it looks like Trudeau will hang on, but with a minority government. Okay. We've been talking with Professor Adnan Hussein. Who's on guerrilla history this week? Oh, well, we just had uh, last Friday, uh, we published uh, our conversation with Comrade Joma, uh, who is the uh, head of founder of head of the Communist Party in the Philippines and is also a scholar and an academic. Uh, he's uh, somebody who's seen a lot of history of the Philippines, the anti-Marcos uh, fight uh, against that dictatorship, and subsequently the post-Marcos period. And he is uh, really, really interesting, and I would say very funny. He actually has a real kind of wry sense of humor. Uh, so I think people will enjoy hearing from somebody who was part of a really important non-Western Communist Party um, and how he analyzed both Philippine politics, uh, but also geopolitics in Asia during this period. Very interesting interview. Okay, before you go, I want to ask you if this ad would appear on Canadian television. This is an ad for Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Would you ever see anything like this on Canadian television? Because it's running here in America. Joe Biden abandoned Americans in Afghanistan, got 13 of our best soldiers killed, gave a kill list of Americans to the Taliban, and armed an Islamic terrorist nation with $83 billion in weapons like this one. Biden should be impeached. 
Now I'm doing a gun giveaway of my own, but for Americans only. I want you to win this 50 caliber rifle that Democrats will ban if they keep the House next year. While Joe Biden broke America's pledge to never leave a man behind, Nancy Pelosi is sneaking the Green New Deal into the $3.5 trillion budget. And in 2022, I'm going to blow away the Democrat socialist agenda. and sign up to win my 50 caliber gun before Joe Biden bans it. That's an ad for Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Green, who's giving away a 50 caliber gun. I can't hear you, David. I think you're... Oh, 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 I'm sorry. That's Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Green. Sorry about that. She's giving away a 50 caliber gun. I yeah, want you to win no this Taliban. 50 caliber rifle that Democrats will ban if they keep the House next year. Will ban? Will ban? That, that's not bad. You can get you can. That is they haven't banned that yet. I find that hard to believe. But, you know, God bless America. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean you don't get a 50 caliber uh, gun. I mean, but, uh, I, you know, I was disappointed to learn, however, that, it, you know, she won't be uh, allowing Taliban to participate in the possible, you know, yeah. contest or whatever to get it. I also assume that socialists won't really be no. high on the gift list. And so as, you know, a Muslim who is a socialist, I guess. Do you drive a Prius? I'm out of luck. I'm out of And I'm living in Canada. So I'm really triply out of luck on this amazing deal. Um, do, do you drive a Prius? Because she blew up a Prius. And it's so, I mean, this is what's so, I cannot believe this is allowed to run on television. <laughs> It's actually, it's actually genius. I mean, this is, I felt like I was, I was. Do you remember I when? Felt like, yeah, I felt like we were in the movie Rambo wanted to be, <laughs> you know, like this was like taking it to another level. You know? <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene is, I, Sarah Palin Ran and this is how bad things have gotten. I don't know if you remember. Sarah Palin is an amateur compared to this woman. I think. Do you remember she put out an ad where she? It was like a Facebook ad that had some Democrats in our crosshairs. Right. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was subject to outrage. There was outrage over that because it seemed so violent, like it was advocating political assassination. Of course, she was using it as a metaphor, but it was a very militaristic, aggressive metaphor. This is like, you know, well, Gabby Gifford's got metaphor here. She's like, you know, the only metaphor is like, is socialism a Prius? You know, I mean, that is essentially um, but she's going to actually blow it up and shoot it and, and destroy it. 
Wasn't there a time when you couldn't show something like that on television? I mean, that's a congressperson. I granted yeah. from Georgia, but still, she's from Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, no. Where is she from? I forget. Where is she? Uh, I believe. Yeah, I guess she, is she Georgia? I thought she was in, from the Midwest, but I guess yeah, she is Georgia. She's, okay. she's from yeah. Georgia. Well, Professor Adnan Hussein, I look forward. Maybe we'll see you Thursday. I hope we don't have. I hope so. We don't have Professor Faluna for a while. Again, he's he's got this client. This apparently he thinks climate change something. But uh, anyway, thank you, sir. Thank Gu- you. Guerrilla history. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. See now, is it sexist for me to say? Because you know, I'm, I'm I have a vested interest in your yes. It is. Go sexist. ahead, David. but that's okay. We forgive you. Okay, so whatever you're, it is you're about to ask, you're, you're the, the parks, answer. you're parks commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. And I have a vested interest in your political career because I have some parking tickets that I need fixed. I would like to see you rise to president. Would you be willing to make an ad like that? Actually, you know, when I was in uh, when I was on my graduate experiment in a dissertation experiment, I went down to Florida State University because I was the only University of Michigan person on my experiment. And one of the professors that was on the FSU was one of the physics professors. Part of our experiment uh, was on an extremely important committee at Florida State University. He was on the parking committee. Mm. He made a very big deal about giving me a, a, some parking sticker where I could park my car in a, in a garage that was about a half mile away from the physics department. Couldn't I couldn't park in the faculty parking lot. But, you know, that was just considered like, ooh, he pulled strings. And, you know, I, I was laughing my ass off, but apparently that's actually, you know, a thing. Oh yeah! If you are, uh, yeah, if, if you being uh, being a parking czar on the faculty. My first writing job. My first writing yeah. job was for Roseanne, and it was uh, CBS Radford, where all the sitcoms are made. So it's it's like a, I'm a week into the job. It's not going well. It was going fine, but I and. I parked in somebody's parking garage right in front of the bungalow where we worked. And this person came out and was screaming at me. And I kept laughing. Like, I thought it was a put-on. I thought, oh, it's a comedy writer. This is my parking spot. You have no idea how hard I've worked to get this part. And I'm laughing. I'm thinking, oh, this is a joke. Because you, I'm thinking... This is a successful comedy writer. He's got more money than he could possibly spend. Why would he care? He's got health insurance. What does he care about a parking spot? And I'm laughing and I go, ah, very funny. I walk away and somebody said, you just pissed off somebody. You have no idea how much you've pissed him off. And if you, you better not park in his parking spot again, he takes it. I'm going, he's got more money than... The guy wanted to kill me. It's amazing. Yeah, there, there's only one. Um, there's only one uh, higher office, and that 
on that score than the uh, parking commission around uh, Chicago. And that's the uh, it's a per- people in charge of giving you a boat slip for your boat in mm. the harbor in Chicago. I mean, you have to have political connections. You have to be brown nosing somebody for a decade. Right. And, and usually people will just the big thing is, is that people will uh, put their boat for sale. And they'll charge just an extraordinary amount of money for it. And people, how do you, this is like, you know, this catch is only is like 50 years old and leaky. No, people throw out the boat because it's the slip permit that comes with the boat. Right. That's in perpetuity. So, right. you know, right. yeah. God, I, I, there's always those little things. You I know? look at people. And they're and- the things that matter to people in life. Yeah. Jackie Mason yeah. said, there's no bigger schmuck than a Jew with a boat. It's one of the hardest I've ever laughed. I watched him do watch one of his shows and I look out over the Hudson River or I'll go look at the East River and I see these people on boats and I keep thinking there's no way they're happy. There's just, you cannot be happy owning a boat circling Manhattan. Maybe. Oh, and, and that's high maintenance. That's worse than owning a horse. In, I mean, yeah. I had a boyfriend with a sailboat. Um, I didn't mind doing all the work on the sailboat. I'm just glad I didn't own it. Yeah. It's floater season here in and, New York, by the way. So. The bodies float this time of year in uh, <laughs> down the East River. It's beautiful. Why, why is that? It takes the bottom, you know, that long to defrost from a cold. Well, it's, you know, autumn. People are getting, uh, well, we don't want to joke about uh that kind of stuff but this is the time of year when all right the floaters the people float by not funny what is on what is on your mind tonight what's uh i have some questions for you well uh i'm i'm just confounded i mean i just have to shake my head because uh you know the ipcc uh, has come out with its report, and it's, you know, pretty dire. That's, That's the, the UN, you know, the UN. The UN climate report. One world government, and, uh, one world government. The, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Biden administration has come out with a statement that there doesn't seem to be anything pressing enough for it to, uh, you know, to change their policy, energy policies. And maybe from their point of view, they might actually even be correct. I mean, you know, I've said forever that... The, uh, the actions of Democratic Party leadership, even the, even the scientists in Congress who will, who will campaign on global warming, and once they're there, basically, they accept all their, you know, they accept fossil fuel money. They just, they're not acting like this is the existential crisis that they all campaign on. I think it is an existential crisis uh, for most of us. I think these guys think they can just move. Or something, you know. There is a, the top five percent think they're mobile enough, have enough money to just kind of keep ahead of this. What's happening? What's already happening? I mean, you know, this is now they're talking. We need to have a reasonable time frame. We only need we need to have to to restrict it to just enough damage that we can possibly mitigate against us in the next thirty to forty years. Yeah. I mean, we're not heading anything off anymore. I mean, it's happening. And that is, uh, and, and I just shake my head over that because it's so transparent. And the Democrats are, you know, w- with this whole business going on with, uh, well, 
Bernie Sanders will say it's Joe Biden's plan because he's a politician, but we all know it's Bernie Sanders' $3.5 trillion plan. And, uh, you know, the Democrats just seem to be doing everything they possibly can to set this thing up for failure. I mean, the Democratic Party leadership. I talk about passive aggressive. This is like the most passive aggressive crap I have ever seen. You know, it's like now they're concerned again about the parliamentarian. Right. Now, I don't know why there isn't a howl just collectively from uh, Pramila Jayapal, just, you know, just out and out condemning the capitulation of Democratic Party leadership because, A, it, it, there's nothing in the Constitution. They could just override the parliamentarian. But even if you follow the rules, uh, uh the vote you're, you're even you broke so, up a little there i don't know what they're doing i don't know if you just said I, I didn't hear that last part yeah you you broke up a little oh, okay yeah my the, the internet has not been uh been consistent speaking of infrastructure but, yes this is at&t wireless which is supposed to be the best wireless you know in the area and it's just this is what happens Yes, yeah, speaking of infrastructure, and this is speaking of the whole thing we need to do. Um, you know, it's just, I, I think that if the Democrats cannot get out of their paralysis right now, I mean, we are going to get worse. And there's going to be populist worse. There, there is worse that can happen. So, What do we do about Joe Manchin? There's a piece in the New York Times He's chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. So he's writing the Democrats' climate plan in the budget bill. He is saying to Bernie, you're going too fast. This is happening too fast. As I said earlier, apparently he hasn't looked out the window. There's something happening that's even faster, yeah. and that's climate change. What do we do about this guy, Manchin? What do we do? Well, we who is we that you mean? I mean, the, those of us peasants, we can call into his office. And I'm guessing that he'll listen to that as much as Hillary Clinton listened to all the calls to her office before the Iraq war vote. I mean, they were coming in over 10 to 1 against. But uh, they don't care. I mean, that's not the people that they're catering to. I think it's on Chuck Schumer. I mean, you are a leader, the Senate leader, for a reason. In in uh, in extreme instances like oh you know the the survival of the planet, you can remove somebody from their position. You know, and this is what what kills me. I mean, Joe Manchin and certainly Kirsten Cinema. These people are not self-made maverick types. They are creatures of the establishment. They are creatures of the order right now, and you know, and they have. I, I mean, some people can say maybe Joe Manchin has a base in, in, in West Virginia, but his power in Washington is because you know, he's tolerated because the leadership wants him to be tolerated. I mean, the he's there serving a purpose. And uh, I, I think that after, after all the phone calls, I mean, you do that kind of thing to show what the limits of it are. You say, hey, we've done this. This is what happens. You're just running the experiment. And this is one big experiment in democracy um, and or into uh, representative democracy. And, yeah, I don't I don't understand uh, if, if you can't. 
push an agenda that most people want. I mean, this isn't exactly like an uphill fight, right? I mean, you know, everything from Medicare for all to canceling debt to taxing the rich to climate, doing something on climate change, a, a Green New Deal, jobs, guaranteed jobs. These are things that are popular with the entire country. Right. So you don't have any excuse, which means if the Democratic Party can't make it happen, it's because the people with real power in the Democratic Party don't want it to happen. I agree with you 100 percent. He is Joe Manchin. Or or the progressives or even regular rank and file Democrats or Bernie Sanders don't call. Maybe Bernie Sanders will. Maybe what will ultimately happen is, is Bernie Sanders, chair of the budget committee, is saying enough of this. I'm not letting the bipartisan bill pass. I'm not letting I'm holding up that and I'm holding up the reconciliation bill. I'm holding up everything. Everybody get back and figure out what needs to be done, because, you know, I'm not fooling around here. I mean, the overwhelming majority of this country wants us to do something significant, not performative, you know, not just lip service. This has got to be something felt by most of the working and middle classes. This has got to be. And, you know, the fatalism that that they're that I think some of the establishment Dems are building on when they blame China for things or we blame Europe. It's like, oh, we're just 25 percent or 20 percent or whatever the common of the carbon producers. Well, we could still be the leader. You know, it's just like what, what's wrong with that? And in fact, the rest of the world would take our lead. I mean, the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world took our lead when it was atrociously bad and obvious to everybody it was atrocious, atrociously bad, like the Iraq war. Well, what if it's for good? Right. So Joe Manchin, you're absolutely right. I'm falling into that Obama trap. I'm rooting for this reconciliation bill and thinking, God, it's an uphill battle. It's so hard to be president. And, you know, Biden really wants this three point five trillion. It would be transformative. But mean old Mr. Manchin won't vote for it. Joe Manchin is the dirtiest mm-hmm. senator in Washington, D.C. Nobody takes more money from oil and coal than Joe Manchin. He owns a coal brokerage firm that delivers something like half a million dollars a year in dividends. Now, that has to be, he's open about it, but that has to be illegal. He sits, he's the chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and he owns a coal brokerage firm that nets him half a million dollars a year, plus all the other investments he has. If I were president, you can't you can't call Joe Manchin up and say, vote for my bill or I'm going to order Merrick Garland, my attorney general, to prosecute you for insider trading. You can't do that. What you can do is leak. You, You can start leaking and saying publicly, you know, I'm really concerned about Joe Manchin owning. I think he should divest himself of Enter Systems. It just doesn't feel right. 
Uh, I mean, one of the things we've learned recently, um, at least on the progressive side running candidates, is that people in offices like DAs or attorney generals have the most discretion of just about any elected official. I mean, even more so than the president. Direct discretion on what they choose because there's a million different kind of laws. And if the Bush administration could get that punk Yao, who's I think still a Berkeley, you know, you, John, Wu, you, the torture guy, yeah, to basically construct a legal scaffolding that justified torture, I think you could go. You could easily. This would be a first year law school assignment to go in and write a brief about how Joe Manchin is violating about ten different federal laws and antitrust. And his daughter. Yeah. And his wife. And his wife. Legally, though, if it goes back to this kabuki dance that goes on that I fall prey to. I fell prey to with Obama and I'm falling prey to it now where I think it's so hard to get legislation passed in Washington. It's so hard. And you realize, no, politics is hardball. The planet... We're about to sink. Right. You go in and say to Joe Manchin publicly. You just during a press conference, you let it slip. I'm very concerned about his daughter, the EpiPen, the price fixing. It's very concerning. The Democratic leadership is like a tuning fork. You can get everybody to get on the same page and start attacking Joe Manchin if you really wanted this $3.5 trillion bill passed. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yes. And, and as Professor and Harvey J.K. said, if it I weren't mean, Joe Manchin, it would be somebody else. I'm sorry? Who else? Kirsten Cinema. She's even less powerful than Joe Manchin. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants her. She really is a complete creature of the establishment. And, and Chuck Schumer probably just said, oh, young, transgender, female, check, check, check. You know, that's probably what was going well, through his Check, mind. check, She's check, and we'll bring in the check, check, checks. <laughs> you know, but the only thing they don't do is distribute them on the floor with the cameras running like old... Uh, uh, Delay? <laughs> Who was it? John Boehner. Oh, Boehner. The that tobacco was, money, yeah. Yes, he was right there. <laughs> I mean, I can't even, like, get mad at the guy. I mean, it's just so brazen. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, it's, well, it, it's it's just confounding the watch. That's why I'm I'm concentrating on local issues. However, I did go home to Michigan this weekend for a wedding, and I arrived at my parents' house, and I... They have MSNBC on. It was Friday afternoon, and I was watching. Who is it? The uh, general head of Central Command and the spokesperson for the Pentagon, basically uh, talking about oh, admitting something that we'd known like three weeks ago that there was a, a bombing that you know they, they basically vaporized an entire family. But one of the things that was interesting. You're talking about General the, McKenzie. Um, yeah. He said, um, uh, but one of the things that was interesting children. after they went to the whole, yeah, oh, <laughs> yes, they did. But after, um, after they went through, you know, the, describing what happened, there was a reporter that asked about the bombing in the Helmand provinces and the uh, Zhaozhan provinces. I mean, two weeks before that happened, 
we were bombing and we hit a school and we hit a hospital and there were reports of several tens of civilians that were just vaporized in those and the reporter asked well uh, will you be uh, investigating those and the Pentagon spokesperson said no we will not and that was it there was no follow-up question from any of the other reporters there that was just you know that was it yeah so, I talked about this at the top of the show Okay. There's no, no, but please, I, I, I. No, but it was just, it, it was yeah. just amazing how well disciplined the uh, disciplined, how well brought to heel the uh, the the press corps is also on this. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, There's a just, uh, there, We do not keep track of the civilians who we've killed during the war on terror. Something like 27,000 civilians have been killed. According to air wars, we don't know. The Pentagon yeah. doesn't uh, doesn't care. In 2006, uh, the Lancet did uh, you're, you're breaking, a you're breaking up. civilians killed, either by direct, you know, combat. Okay. I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. But anyway, that was back in 2006, where the Lancet uh, estimated that upwards of a million Iraqi civilians were killed, either directly or indirectly, by our war there. That was all the way back then. Right. That would be 15 years ago. And we've just never stopped the bombing. Now, we're bombing in seven countries. I don't know if we're bombing anymore in Libya, but it's just... Uh, you know, uh, it's just war as a perpetual war as a business model, you know, that uh, we also have to disentangle to ourselves from. But I was just thinking oh, this weekend over a lot of this stuff, you know, Nina Turner, who uh, I'm very disappointed to say is not looks like she's not running again because <laughs> uh, she'd be having to like gear up for it. So the primaries are May 2nd or 3rd in Ohio. So she's over at the Young Turks. I, which I think is kind of a waste, but she used to say with, with regards to the billionaires and the 1%, if nothing changes for them, nothing changes for you. Right. But I think what's confounding progressives is that there's a corollary to that. If nothing substantially changes for the top 5 to 10%, nothing changes much for the bottom 80% either. In other words, a lot of people who would regard themselves as liberal, you know, if it meant a hit to their 401ks at Bernie's plan passing and saving the earth and, you know, most of your fellow citizens being able to lead a reasonable life meant that maybe your 401ks go down by 10 or 20 percent. You know, maybe. And that's that's the problem. Uh, I'm in a fund that's supposedly socially, you know, that a, a socially responsible fund. But do I really know it's in there? I mean, no. I mean, you've, you've got investments placed on it, blended with other investments. It's like we're all kind of chained to a system. And that, complicit. They make you complicit. And complicit. We are made complicit. Well, you know, that's why you wonder why, you know, uh, old Colin Powell was tapped by the Bush crime family. Well, Colin Powell is a made man. He has demonstrated in his past that he's willing to lie on behalf of power. And that was his job. You know, basically when he got up and lied in front of the world and the United Nations, then, you know, that's basically their use for him. And if whatever he thought he was going to get out of that, I mean, Bushko wasn't interested in. 
So, yeah, and when we realize that, and I think it's not a matter of just being, you know, just being uh, uh, fatalistic. It's, it's just that, you know, it, it's actually in a weird way empowering that goes on because I'm somehow part of it, which means if I somehow start, you know, uh, rebelling against that in my own existence, then it's just a matter of, like, um, not caring about, just not... It's, it takes a lot of energy to care about people, especially when you're trying to keep your own house and, and job and career afloat. But, you know, my going out and, you know, uh, giving people crap about the school kids in the East Aurora School District. We kept our program in the Park District for distant learning. What's happening is worse for many kids than remote learning or school being postponed. A lot of kids are now getting quarantined. Because, you know, the kids are getting, coming down with COVID. They're testing now. And the quarantine kids aren't getting, there's no program in the schools, remote learning. They're just home not doing anything, you know, just getting behind in school. The Park District does have that. uh, It's program that we ran during COVID, and they did not. I told them not to, and they did not (laughs) uh, dismantle that program. In fact, they have 85 kids enrolled, and uh, now the fight this is just a little skirmish who ends up paying for it, but I think that's minor. Um, but, uh, you know, they, it's it's just something you can do. And I think that when other people see you caring about something, maybe they feel like a little guilty, maybe, or, or just maybe they have no idea that you can just actually help. So my usual you know, canard of, get off your ass, run for public office, you know, just try, because you do change the culture. And I know there was much of uh, a silly dress with tax the rich on it. This, to me, it's it's an illustration of our entire political system, you know, kind of a performative protest for something that over 60% of the country already believes. While outside the gala, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters were getting beaten up uh, peaceful protesters getting beaten up and arrested by cops. And I thought, you know, an easy thing for somebody, even if they were motivated by ambition and nothing else to do, was to step out of there with your designer dress and your uh, high-priced accessories and get between the cops. Do you think that de Blasio, who was also there, I think that he was kind of the target of the protest because, you know, the, the police are just maniacs in New York. There's somebody just got killed uh, two or three weeks ago. I think this Mike Rosado, Michael Rosado, no, uh, no consequences. And this is in a democratic state. So, you know, uh, de Blasio was not going to let his cops rough, you know, rough up Ocasio-Cortez. And she could have made a much more important and I think much more daring statement if she just but you know that's our politics and, and you heard about the, the did you hear about the woman who designed her did you hear about the woman who designed her dress <laughs> yeah of course how ironic well yeah I, the, that she was dodging some taxes i did read through that article but and she runs a sweatshop me. allegedly yes this, exactly i'm going oh but it's the new york so post funny. it's in the new york that's a murdoch rag that I love. Okay, but, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not true, and, and right. I'm sure people can, you know, could could easily refute it if it weren't true, but the point is, is that the whole Democratic Party wants safe, you know, they want to be edgy and safe at the same time, you know, so they like that. We are in love with celebrity. You were talking a little bit earlier about uh, Hollywood culture, but that's just exactly what 
the Democratic Party loves. You know, they like watching the Oscars and the Emmys and they, you know, the royalty coming down and the servants all masked in the back. I think to me it's kind of hilarious, but, you know, that that's people feel safe. You know, somebody actually stepping out and getting into, you know, getting between police and unarmed pro- peaceful protesters, that's that takes a little courage. People don't want to see that. They don't want to feel that they maybe have to do that one day. You know, they feel that if they just kind of got the brand and the bumper stickers that they're, you know, doing their bit. And, you know, that's our that that's the world we live in. But I think that uh, all of that is just kind of distraction if you if people really do get involved at the most basic local level. Yeah, I can brag that me and my fellow birdie bro got more people uh, on the minimum wage than all of the progressives (laughs) in Congress combined, because, you know. Park District wanted to exempt itself from minimum wage for part-time people, which the uh, uh, temporary people, which is most of the Park District's employees, you know, just for a few months of the year. And uh, we uh, we basically shamed and conjoled people uh, to backing down from that. So anyway, um, and we kept the salaries of the top people, and that kind of, you know, caused me uh, a little discomfort, well, the, from the from the executive board, but, uh, you know, just keeping this, there's any pressure on salaries. I thought it should be from the top, you know, not the people at the very bottom of you do that. And you change the culture a little bit. You change what's allowed to be discussed. You change what you you can actually, uh, you can change what people feel they can actually do. If something becomes a reality, you know, that's, uh, that's all I can. I mean, yeah, certainly go vote, go, uh, call your, uh, call your congressman. I called mine. It was futile, but basically there was only one uh, uh, Democrat who committed to not supporting this, uh, this bill, this, uh, this bipartisan up on the 27th, if there wasn't the reconciliation bill to go with it. Only one Democrat, that was Jan Schakowsky, has committed to not voting for that bill. You know, there's a, I think the count is up to 16, which they, that's the absolute minimum they need. You know, things like that we can do and, and, and put pressure there. But, uh, you know, we're going to have to live in a world where it's possible that the worst outcome happens legislatively. This, and we still, we can't let it crush us or stop us from, you know, pushing forward. And, you know, having, I, I saw a little bit of, who was it, Brittany, that, who is running in Staten Island. I, re- I did read her article. I mean, okay, okay, that's the kind of person. After uh, Great writing, month, perhaps, right? Yeah. Uh, next month, there is an unabashed uh, progressive who's running in the 8th District. We won't really know what the districts are in Illinois until it turns out next, uh, next month, like some first part of October. But he's running. And he is just an unapologetic progressive. And I think uh, you'd like to, you know, I told him about the show and I think he'd be willing to come on. Please. So, please. Yeah. And of course, we have Rachel Aventura, who was running against Bill Foster last time. It was a yeah, she was hit pretty hard by that defeat. However, she's right back. She's running for state Senate. We've had her on the show before. Yeah, you had her on the show last year. Uh, it, it, did you have her recently? No. Okay, she's running for state senate, and that looks—I mean, 
she's been causing quite a ruckus uh, on uh, the Will County Board, and she's one of these people that just never stops. So as disappointing as everything has seemed to be in the last year or so, it's just amazing how all these great people keep showing up. You know, so we just, this is just a, a, a continuous process. We have to keep pushing. And by the way, you do keep doing the hard work. And when change happens, it can happen suddenly. Yeah. I mean, it can happen overnight. But, you know, it happened because people never quit trying and pushing the envelope and challenging people. And, you know, it's like, I know a lot of people and I was one. I blame myself. To quote Herman Crane, you know, when Obama got elected, I I did feel like, wow, maybe the system does correct itself, you know. Oops. So, and I know a lot of people want to feel that the system, with the last uh, election and the squad, that oh, the system is correcting itself. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it is correcting itself, but it's not going to be for our benefit. <laughs> We've got to be pushing continuously. So. Fantastic. Thank you. We don't have Ian Faluna. Thank you. Yeah, we don't have Ian Faluna, by the way, for the. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, maybe he is busy. I'm sorry. I know. He. I know we don't, and there's so many questions I want to ask him, but. Yeah. All right, Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist as well as a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. Great job. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thank, are you kidding? My God. Call Joe Manchin's office at 304-368-0567. Be polite, right? Right, Professor? Absolutely. Be polite. He will not re If you call him a criminal, he's, they're going to not listen to your message. But, you know, if the planet is going the way we think it's going. If we think what's left of this democracy is going the way we think it's going, at least as you're going from the water, uh, you can think of at least I called Joe Manchin's office and politely asked him to vote for Bernie's reconciliation bill. 304-368-0567. Do you want to, I mean, apparently Joe Manchin right now has no quarrel with being the Democrat who killed the planet so he could collect half a million dollars a year in dividends from his coal company and kill our democracy. He has no problem with that. When this all ends and it's coming, at least you know that you called 304 368 0567 and exercised your power as an American citizen to tell Joe Biden, not Joe Biden, Joe Manchin, like that's any better, uh, not to destroy our planet or our democracy. Be polite. Be polite. Thank you, Professor Marianne. I think I did I lose you. I think I lost you. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up the show. We're not going to do community billboard. I think Dan got called away. There's a story coming out of the El Paso Times. It's another Abu Ghraib. 
And by Abu Ghraib, I mean, we always do these horrible things, but we found out about it. And the optics are bad. The optics are bad. Earlier in the show, I showed you pictures of Haitians who are trying to come into America. They're parked outside the border, swimming across the Rio Grande, back and forth. They they go up to the border in uh, the United towards the United States, and then they swim across the Rio Grande back to Mexico to pick up food for each other. These are people who are suffering. They don't want to go back to Haiti because there was just a 7.2 earthquake that killed about 2,000 people, injured 15, I don't have the numbers in front of me, destroyed about 120,000 homes. There was a presidential assassination there two months ago. Haiti is in turmoil. They are, many refugees are coming to South America and then trying to come to America. All four of my grandparents were refugees. This country was built on refugees. We have a shortage of people in the United States. There is no population explosion here in the United States. It's an implosion. We need more people here because for some reason, young Americans are not reproducing. I don't know. Maybe they heard about something going on in the news that is discouraging them from thinking, hey, I should bring life into this country. Maybe something's going on in the news where young Americans are thinking might not be a good idea to reproduce. So we have a shortage of people in this country, a shortage. We don't have enough people in this country. We always hear that there are 10 million jobs that can't be filled here in the United States. Why do you think that's so? Partly because they pay shit wages, also because we've closed the border. We don't take anybody into this country. It's embarrassing the number of people we grant asylum to. We need more people to keep this Ponzi scheme of capitalism going. More people means more people paying taxes. More people means more people paying into Medicare and Social Security. If you want Medicare to keep you going, you know how that happens? You, you need a fresh crop of workers paying into it, baby boomers. So those borders need to be opened up and we need to allow the Haitians into our country. And, you know, Bill and Hillary, of all people, should be advocating for the Haitian refugees, especially how they screwed that country. The Clinton Foundation just screwed the country of Haiti. You would think Bill and Hillary would be down at the border fighting for these people. So earlier in the show, I showed you some pictures that were taken of these uh, these migrants coming to America. This is uh, these are 
Haitian migrants waiting across the Rio Grande. These pictures were taken by Felix Marquez for uh, the Associated Press. They're very haunting. This is a little girl being carried by her father. They had gone shopping in Ciudad Acuna. That's a city in Mexico. And they are now coming back to uh, across the Rio Grande to see if they can get into the United States. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is uh, sending them back. He's shipping them back to Haiti. And so there's some problems with optics. This is your uh, this was not taken by uh, the Associated Press. This picture is causing trouble for Homeland Security, kind of like Abu Ghraib. So it's not the abuse of the Haitian immigrants. It's that we found out about it. This is from the El Paso Times. Uh, Haitian migrants face tough choices in Del Rio amid crackdown at Texas, Mexico, Border. It's in the El Paso Times. It's written by Martha Sikowski. Uh, Dateline Ciudad Acuna, Mexico. A mounted U.S. Border Patrol agent shouted commands in a tense encounter with Haitian migrants wading through the Rio Grande near Del Rio, Texas. As the Haitians tried to climb onto the U.S side of the river on Sunday, the agent shouted, let's go, get out now, back to Mexico. They uh, had gone back to Mexico to buy food and water. And uh, there are reports of these. It's unbelievable what I'm about to tell you. Uh, These these border patrol agents are on horseback. They're wearing their cowboy hats and they are using a lariat and whipping it close to the face of these migrants. They're snapping whips at the at the Haitian migrants. Adam Sewer says the cruelty is the point. Why would you why would you become a Border Patrol agent if you weren't in it for the cruelty to get dressed up as a cowboy and ride herd on these Haitian migrants. More than 15,000 Haitian migrants have converged in uh, Del Rio, Texas, and they are... uh, Looks like they're being... Whips are being snapped in uh, in their faces. We don't know if they're being whipped. Jen Psaki called the images horrible, but she says she cannot yet tell us what the consequences will be for the border agents. That's your tax dollars at work, America. That's it. So it's the optics that the Biden administration is concerned about. That's what they care about. These photographs came out of Border Patrol agents dressed as cowboys, 
snapping whips at these Haitian immigrants. The, the flame, the Statue of Liberty's flame has been replaced by a bullwhip. This is your country. This is your country. And Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, who is a refugee from Cuba and a Jew, so he knows something about being a refugee, he's in charge of Homeland Security, and he's ordering these Haitians to be what they call repatriated, being sent back to Haiti. I'm going to need some evidence for patriotism. I love this country because, uh, you know, Ralph Nader, Martin Luther King, Franklin Roosevelt, this country has produced some of the greatest people in the history of civilization. Joe Biden ain't one of them. Joe Biden ain't one of them. Uh, that's our show. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak like the Haitian immigrants who uh, we need in this country. We need immigrants. There's a shortage of Americans. We have a shortage of Americans. I will see all of you on Thursday when we record our next episode. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you.